This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. show of the week. It is time for you to ask questions about anything you have questions about. As we do the last uh, the first hour of our last program of the week, it is time for The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Whatever you are genuinely curious about, I am going to do my best to answer over the course of the next 60 minutes. And uh, if you are able to come up with a very clever question, a very creative question, then uh, we will give you a prize for whomever in the in the judgment of Matt Blaze, Alex Barnard, and Kenneth has the best question. All right, let us begin with... And, uh, uh, Matt, I'm going to have to have you pull up the uh, caller here because my mouse is missing. Uh, we'll begin with William in Asbury Park. Hello there, William. Hey, Frank. I heard you sat during an interview, so I'm assuming you're a fan. Favorite Star Trek series? Uh, it's such a good question. Uh, if I had to pay, you know, look, I've got a soft spot for the original series because it was such a groundbreaking uh, series, and I think there were so many great characters. <sighs> You know, my brother is of the uh, is of the belief that there's a strong case to be made that Deep Space Nine is the best. Oh, that's uh, is my the best favorite series. too, man. I, you know, I'm going to rewatch Deep Space Nine because I like Deep Space Nine very much, and I re- I watched it when it was on. Uh, the first season or two of Deep Space Nine, I thought was fairly weak, honestly. Uh, that being said, later well, on in the series, it got so good. So I'm going to rewatch the entire series, which I don't think I've seen since it was on. See, what happened, I don't know if you remember this, William, but what happened when Star Trek Voyager started in the New York area, it was on, I think, Wednesday nights at 9 or some such time, yeah, and yeah. Deep Space Nine was in syndication. It wasn't It wasn't on a network. It was in syndication, and it was on Channel 11 here in New York. So it was on actually at the same time as Star Trek Voyager. So I, you had to choose if you were going to watch Voyager or Deep Space Nine. And yeah, I wanted to get I on. I ended up watching reruns right, well, because so I didn't have cable. I wanted time. to get in on the ground floor of Voyager. So I actually stopped watching Deep Space Nine for a year or two. And then I went back. And by the time I went back, they were doing the whole thing with the Dominion. Worf was on the show. It was really a, a great oh, show. Worf. So. <laughs> Uh, if I look, if I had to pick my favorite, 
And uh, I haven't seen the new series, the uh, the uh, Strange New Worlds or the uh, the new animated series or L- Lower Decks. No, or, I, ha- I tried I have, to watch that animated one, but... Yeah, well, no, I've seen the Star Trek, the animated series, but I haven't seen the new animated series, Lower Decks. But um, oh, I didn't know about that one. Well, yeah, thank you, William. So uh, I, uh, I, I, if I had to pick, my sentimental favorite is the original series because I love the characters and I love how groundbreaking it is. But if you're asking me what is the best made television, I'm probably going to pick The Next Generation. Next Generation was terrific. The acting was great. The stories were great. I am going to rewatch Deep Space Nine. Look, they're all good, right? Um, my favorite is probably the original series, um, then Next Generation, then then maybe Deep Space Nine, then Voyager, then Enterprise, then the animated series, the 1972 version, because there's some good episodes of that. And then I haven't seen uh, Discovery, I haven't seen Strange New Worlds, and I haven't seen this new animated series, uh, Lower Decks. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Pete is in Piscataway. Hello, Pete. Hi, Frank. Oh, before my question, before we start, this is this is William Shatner week starting. You have to check YouTube for a nineteen eighty five Western Airlines commercial with Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner. Check it out; it's pretty cool. Here's my question: Do you think in 2000, 2015, the Mets kind of mishandled uh, Matt Harvey's uh, pitching routine, career, or whatever? Well, look, I thought so at the time. I don't think in hindsight you could say that they did, because if you look at what Matt Harvey's done in the last seven or eight years, it's professionally, it's very little. So, I mean, he has made very little contribution to any team, the Angels, the Orioles, since um, since the Mets got rid of him. So it, it looks like in hindsight the Mets did uh, handle that appropriately. I was a huge Matt Harvey fan. I really liked him, and I'm still hoping, I don't know how realistic it is, but I'm still hoping that he makes something of a comeback. I'd like to see him even with all the difficulty difficulties that he'd had that he's had i'd love to see him come back and play for the mets maybe in a relief pitching role but i'm a big matt harvey fan um i don't at the time i did think the mets mishandled him but if you look at what he's done the last seven or eight years i don't think you can say that it looks like the mets were prophetic for once 800-848-9222 for those of you that are not Mets fans or not baseball fans the mets have a long history of two things One is they get rid of someone and then they become the biggest stars in the world, right? I mean, you go down the list. Nolan Ryan, he the Mets got rid of him and then he went on to pitch seven no hitters. You got, uh, you know, you go down the list. Fernando Vina, he was no one with the Mets, became an all-star after they got rid of him. Carl Everett, no one with the Mets, and then uh, and then he became a superstar. Jeremy Burnett, so you go down the list, uh, player after player. When the Mets had them, they were nobody, and then the Mets get rid of them, and then they become the biggest stars in the world. Then the other thing that happens with Mets with the Mets, and this is sort of the curse of the Mets, is if you're already a star and the Mets get you, then you get hurt right away, or your your season just ends. And it's without great acclaim. I mean, if you look at all the great Mets stars that were superstars elsewhere and then they came to the Mets and had lackluster careers, it's too long of a roster to list. I mean, it's – I mean, how about Mo Vaughn, for instance? 800-848-9222. Bill is in Huntington. Hello, Bill. Okay. My question is about pork rinds, the snack food. Yes. All right. Now, in Mexico – there's an hors d'oeuvre that's called, I think you pronounce it, chicarones, okay? And that's fried pork rinds. 
All right. Now, if you go into a place like Texaco Quick Mart and you buy a bag of pork rinds, is is that pork rinds Mexican food? You know, it's a good question. I don't think so, right? I mean, I, I don't know how it's prepared and how it uh, how it compares to chicharrones, but I certainly wouldn't count it as Mexican food. I, I don't know, though. I'm not, you know, I don't. I'll be honest. I don't really eat pork, so uh, I really couldn't. Uh, I'm not an authority on uh, on pork rinds. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Charles is in Queens. Hello, Charles. Yeah. Hi. Um, my question to you is. Have you ever spec? I know, for example, uh, our previous, not previous, an ex-mayor at Cops made a whole plan for his funeral and what it would look like and so on, more than people do for a wedding. My question is not if, is if you plan, ever thought about, speculated, what your funeral might look like, what people will talk about, will you be more glamorized in death than in life? Altogether, how many people would care about you, which ones would, which wouldn't, how about your audience? And more well, or less, would you? I don't know if you thought, if, if you did think about it, would you think about it happening? God forbid, God forbid, within the next five years or in fifty years or both? Well, I hope it's not and, in the next five years. Look, so yes, yeah, so the question I said, is, God forbid, I said, right, God forbid, right, right, right. So, um, I, uh, I, yeah, I think about it a lot. I've talked to my wife about it. Look, uh, I would ideally like to be cryogenically frozen and be brought back uh, many, many hundreds of years from now. And I've had some discussions with my wife about this. She feels differently. She wants, now that human composting is legal, she wants to be human composted, and uh, she wants us, if if she predeceases me, she wants us to plant a tree based on her topsoil and, uh, and honor her that way. And we're both big organ donors. So whenever we do end up dying, we want them to take every organ that you can that you can take. I always thought that cryogenic freezing was something that was uh, cost prohibitive, but a couple of listeners have emailed me and they said that what a lot of people are doing, and I'm looking into this and I haven't made arrangements to do this, but I'm looking into this. What a lot of people are doing in order to make it more cost effective is they're getting a life insurance policy in an additional life insurance policy and whatever, in addition to whatever goes to your family and they're having it paid to the cryogenic freezing people. Now I've invited an expert in cryogenic freezing and he was all set to come on. Then he got the days mixed up and then he didn't want to come on. I don't know this story there. I'm still hoping to get someone because I do have a lot of questions about it. But um, so I am looking into that. But as far as the uh, funeral goes, I hope a lot of people will come and uh, I really hope it's fun, and I, I don't want to spoil anything, and I hope I don't die within the next week or two. So if I do die within the next week or two, then this will be very anticlimactic. But if I die 10 years from now or 20 years from now, nobody's going to remember what I told you. What I told my wife that I'd really love to do is have someone, whether it's her or one of a, a pre-approved list of people to, who are giving the eulogy, <laughs> that when they're, they're, they have a very serious moment during the eulogy, and they are about to say something really dramatic, and uh, they're about to say something to the effect of, uh, all right, well, you know, if Frank were here, there's some very profound parting words that he'd like to leave with you, and those are, and at that very moment, have two people dressed as giant hot dogs 
burst into the church or wherever the funeral happens to be and start squirting one another with water pistols. And in the middle of the funeral, have these two giant hot dogs, these two people dressed as hot dogs, squirting one another with water pistols, and then have those hot dogs chased out, and then have, whether it's my friend Vinny or uh, my son Carmine or my wife, uh, say... As they're giving the eulogy, say something to the effect of, I can't believe you guys have ruined yet another funeral. I think that would be very funny. And I've, promised, I've made my wife promise that, um, that, uh, that she would do that. And she's agreed. She's agreed to do that. So we'll see how that goes. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Let me say hello to, uh, let's see, Tom is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Tom. Yes. Yes, I'd like to say, did you ever see a a very funny cartoon or animation of of uh, yes of Laverne and Shirley and the Commanding Pig? You know, I actually no, I've never seen that. No, my God, that's hilarious. I don't know whether Penny Marshall and the uh, I think the woman named Williams. Was uh, was involved in making that? It sounds like their voices. Really? Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not up on that, Tom. No, I, I have to be was, honest. It was hilarious. That was hilarious. Yeah, I'll, I'll look into there it. Tom. Astronauts in there. Oh, really? No, I'm not up on that. I'm not familiar with that. But I'll uh, I'll see if I can look that up. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Chris is in the Catskills. Hello, Chris. Hey, good morning, Frank. Are you aware of the denouncing the horrors of socialism bill that passed today through the House of Representatives? And it was a bipartisan vote, and 109 Democrats voted for it, 86 voted against it, and 14 voted present, not voting either yay or nay. Shows the split in the Democratic Party. So the question is, am I aware of it? Yes, I am aware of it. Thank you. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. George is in Manhattan. Hello, George. George, Hi. what's on your mind, pal? Hi. Listen, Frank. Yes. I agree with you a lot. Thank you. Perhaps 90%. If 100, I'd be considered insane. Now, here is my disappointment. Okay. I called earlier, you know. To, of course, uh, he was running out of time. But you do have a minute or two to spare, of course. Uh, so, Dom, you know, he was George, running out yeah, of what's time. your question, George? And you made a comment. Now, I have a preface and then a question, all right? Right, right. okay. Okay. Now, uh, I consider, uh, 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 for example, the mayor, you know, Eric Adams, responsible for the problems we're having vis-a-vis the um, so-called migrants. Now, my situation is this and then you respond you know uh, with your opinion i believe that the five uh, million are going to transform you know into 25 million within three to six years because once they get the green cards or become resident aliens you know uh which means that be right so george uh, a lot of people here what's your question exactly what's your question their relatives, including grandparents, whom we have to support. George, your question, your question, please. Right. So don't you think uh, he's doing 
not a great job because he created the problem initially, and then he wants credit because he's gotten to the hilt as far as the problem. And the only uh, situation that's going to happen as a result is getting things a little better but still unsatisfactory. Yeah, I mean, look, thank you, George. I think the the criticism from the Speaker of the City Council, Adrian Adams, about how uh, Mayor Adams cleared out these migrants from Hell's Kitchen is totally misguided, and that's what I was uh, that's what I was talking about. Okay, and uh, I uh, I think the mayor look the mayor's in a tough spot, right? I mean, uh, they got this right to shelter law, and um, you know, that's not something that the mayor can change on his own. I think that the Nicole Gelinas column. Uh, on the uh, migrant situation was a good one. And uh, look, I think ultimately, though, it's a national problem, right? Until the country is able to figure out a problem to deal with this, I think it's unfair to solely blame the mayor for this. I think they need to be in uh, congr- in in whatever you call it, congregate housing, right? And I think there needs to be a congregate shelter. I don't think they should be housed in three-star hotels. And the fact that the mayor um, cleared these folks out of Hell's Kitchen and uh, move them to congregate housing in uh, Red Hook, I think that's a positive. That's what I was talking about. Thank you. 800-848-9222. And for everybody that calls, if you could kind of just get to your question right away, just we'd appreciate it. Not just for me, but for, one, the listeners, and two, the people that are trying to get on with questions. So you could say a question that begins with the word what, who, how, where, do, does, why. Those are all questions. If you have to give a whole five-minute explanation before you get to your question, it's not really a question. It then becomes a commentary. You see the difference? All right. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Birthday bumper music selection by uh, my friend James Toto, who unfortunately was a little late getting me his bumper music selections. So uh, yesterday was his birthday, but hopefully all of his wishes came true. That's that. All right. We are doing an Ask Frank Anything, answering your questions on any subject. 800-848-9222. Rob is in White Plains. Hello, Rob. Hello, Frank, my man. Listen, uh, I got a question for you. Uh, maybe you want to ask this. I don't know if you thought of it for uh, William Shatner when you're on stage mm-hmm. with him next. Is it next week? Friday, Friday and uh, a week from today. Yes. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Leonard Nimoy has a, had a bit of a rep. I know he's gone now, but had a bit of a reputation of being standoffish. And I'm wondering if you ever thought of asking William Shatner the question, did he ever feel, you know, get close to Leonard Nimoy, like really close to him? And, and if so, did he get pricked by his Vulcan ears? <laughs> That's very funny. Thank you, Rob. Yeah, I mean, uh, I will get into the relationship that he had with Nimoy, because those of you that are familiar with Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, no, there's a very poignant scene that deals with Kirk and Spock. And I'm going to ask Shatner how that relationship, the Kirk-Spock relationship at that moment, 40 years ago, as depicted in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, how that mirrored the um, Shatner-Nimoy relationship. Because while they were on the show together in the 1960s, they were friendly, but not friends. They had sort of a rivalry going and... Uh, There were egos involved and all sorts of other things. But then they not only became friends when they started doing conventions and things like that together, they became the best of friends. And in fact, at Shatner's third marriage, uh, Leonard Nimoy was his best man. And um, I think uh, both of them, from what I understand, didn't necessarily have many close friends, but they were among one another's closest friends. And then something happened the last seven years or so of um, Nimoy's life, and he stopped talking to Shatner. And so they didn't speak for the last seven years of Nimoy's life. And uh, we're going to get into that. That's one of the things that we're going to talk about. Uh, but um, it's going to be very interesting to see how he handles that question. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Hey, David is in the Bronx. Hey, David, I know um, I know Dominic Carter has been uh, promoting this um, GoFundMe uh, to your benefit. Catch folks up if folks have not heard about uh, what Dominic is doing. Why, uh, why is Dominic doing a GoFundMe, and, and what particular hardship do you find yourself in these days? Well, it was because we were talking about the migrants, actually, at the hotel, and I had a bit of a breakdown because, you know, I worked very hard during my life, uh, you know, 70-hour weeks and, you know, no vacation ever. And I was upset because these people, you know, are receiving benefits that people like myself are losing benefits right now. You know, I, I lost the um, Medicare uh, thing that helps me pay for my diabetes medication. So that's what I was upset about. And I had a bit of a breakdown on the air. So some some caller volunteered to start a GoFundMe for me to help me pay for these things. Well, that's nice. It's that, actually very nice. Because, absolutely. You know, people complain about me because I'm a liberal. But, you know, a lot of people who apparently disagree with me actually contributed and were very kind in their words. So it's very appreciated by me. That's very um, nice. Yeah, I've just shared that. If people do want to contribute, they can go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash MoranoFan, and make a uh, a donation. Now, this money does go to you, right? It's not a George Santos-type situation where he well, it's keeps funny. the I money? I was joking with the guy. I've spoken to the guy who started the page, and I said, this isn't another George Santos thing, right? Gotcha. You know, right, well, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. No, no, I'm sure it's not. He's a very nice person, oh, actually, good. He's right. in California. Yeah. Um, but um, I want to make a quick suggestion before I get to my question, which will be a very quick question. Um, regarding the hot dogs at your funeral, the yes. two hot dogs, instead of water pistols, why don't they have squeeze bottles, one with uh, uh, ketchup and the other with mustard? Well, uh, that might be more I, appropriate. It Although, might be a messier. little bit more of a mess, right? That's what I'm worried yeah. about. I feel like water pistols are relatively harmless, but I'll, I'll put it in. I'll, I'll consider it. I'm happy to consider it. Put it in the suggestion box. There you, there you go. <laughs> 
All right. Um, my question, with the death of Lanny Poffo, who was probably one of the more interesting uh, wrestlers and intelligent, gave great interviews. I think you might have spoken to him, um, I think, from memory. Um, which dead wrestler, of which there are many, unfortunately, would you like to have had a chance to interview before they went on to the mortal coil or wherever well, people go? It's a great question, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about Lanny Poffo next hour. But there are there are many. There are many, but if I had to pick one, it probably would be uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper. Uh, Roddy Piper was maybe the wittiest man ever, right? I mean, he, he was just in. Look, there are a lot of great wrestling wits and a lot of great performers. Dusty Rhodes, um, many others. The the list is is interminable, interminable. But um, you talk about somebody that not only has an incredible knowledge of pro wrestling, but can also talk about Hollywood, can talk about anything, really. Roddy Piper, and has just so many great stories, somebody that didn't seem to care about about offending anyone. Roddy Piper is is it, as far as I'm concerned. Roddy Piper is great. Now, in terms of living people, uh, someone that I understand is not doing too well, who I'd love the opportunity to interview, is uh, superstar Billy Graham. He was uh, just absolutely tremendous. I'd love to be able to interview him sometime. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, and, and the first one that came to mind when you asked the question was, uh, was Roddy Piper. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Joel is in Manhattan. Hello, Joel. Hi, Frank. Uh, you almost touched on my subject matter going on. Okay, so here's here's the scoop. Mm-hmm. You have the possibility of pulling people back from time, mm. and they could be from any era, free people that you're going to pull back. It could be from 50 years, 100 years, 500 years, 1,000 years ago, whatever. You have the capability of communicating them. They all, let's just say they all speak English, all right, so you can have a conversation. You bring them up to snuff about about through history and what's going on right now, and you're going to have a forum with these people on one subject. Who are you going to bring back, and what's the forum? Hmm. Uh, great question. All right, so I'm bringing back I'm bringing back uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Okay, um, I'm bringing back uh, Karl Marx, and I'm bringing back um, the third one is tricky. Um, and I hate to be so American centric because I'm very tempted to bring back William Shakespeare, but he may not necessarily fit in with the kind of conversation that I that I want to have. So I, I'm tempted to also bring back Muhammad, um, you know, to ask him some things about um, the nature of uh, Islam these days. I'm tempted to bring back uh, Christopher Columbus. But if I had to pick a third, I'm going with George Washington. So um, Karl Marx, George Washington, and Theodore Roosevelt. I am. Uh, I'm talking about democracy. Democracy and uh, the ability uh, of people to govern themselves, and how and what the best forms of self governance are. Those are the three that I'm that I'm bringing back. All right. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you, Joel. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I need to cut you off there if you had another comment. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Sammy is in New Jersey. Hello, Sammy. Yeah, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll ask my question first, and then I'll explain why I asked sure. in just a moment. So my question is, do you believe with your bosses that aliens exist? And if yes, do you get fan mail from them? 
Um, yeah, I mean, so yes, I, cer- I, I certainly believe in extraterrestrials. I have not gotten any fan mail, no. Yeah, so the reason I'm asking that is because the whole last year, I think up until January, they had um, that thing running, that, um, the talk show, um, renowned worldwide and beyond. And the only beyond I can think of is uh, aliens. Well, you never so know, I right? Know if I you mean, agree with him. You could have other, other, you know, um, other planes, other dimensions as well. That's that's fair. But no, I have not heard from anyone uh, beyond this planet. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Larry is in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Hello, Frank. I'd like to know why uh, talk radio in this day and age is so male-dominated when we have brilliant women like Ann Coulter that could do that could really enlighten people so much. You know, I know there are three women on Sunday that have hour shows only, but it's so male dominated. Why is that? Well, look, I, I really don't know. I, I think part of it is be, it has to do with the fact that a lot of the listenership is male oriented. It's not exclusively male dominated on our station. You've had people like Lynn Samuels, for instance, Lisa Sliwa, Joy Behar. Um, now is, you mentioned Joan Hamburg is also Rita Cosby, but one of the most listened to uh, national talk show hosts in the country is Dana Loesch. Uh, so uh, she's not heard on our station, but, uh, but she's heard. Certainly she has a wide audience around the country. Uh, Kim Commando uh, in the tech, in the tech sector. She's very, very widely listened to. Uh, so uh, in terms of why it's such a good question, I think it has to do with, um, you know, I really don't know, honestly. I think um, part of it is the fact that it goes to why is talk radio so conservative? And I think it, part of it has to do with emulating formulas that have worked, right? Uh, whenever we get into this question, I always talk about how Rush Limbaugh could have been successful in talk radio no matter what he talked about. Doesn't matter if he talked about politics, football, didn't matter if he was liberal, conservative, whatever. Uh, Rush Limbaugh could talk about basket weaving and he would have been successful. So what happened? A whole bunch of stations wanted to uh, put Rush on. They saw the great ratings they were getting with Rush. And then they uh, they wanted to emulate that format by putting all these Rush imitators on and uh, people that uh, that had none of his talent, but they mirrored his politics. And I think that's maybe part of what you're seeing, uh, part of the the desire to extend the listenership to a lot of the popular male talk show hosts leads to mimicry and other male talk shows. But look, I think there's a lot of women that could do well on talk radio. I th- but I think maybe part of it is the fact that, um, and again, there are the women doing very well on talk radio, but... I think a lot of the the listenership is not not exclusively, but it's majority male oriented, right? You see that with the callers, right? I'm looking at one, two, three, four, five callers right now on hold. One of them is uh, is female, and I think um, maybe they gravitate at times more to male hosts. But I agree uh, with your with your premise, which is that there are a lot of prominent female hosts that would be very successful on talk radio and should be uh, given an opportunity to. Uh, to succeed. A lot of the female radio listeners that I that I talk to, they tend to gravitate, not all of them, but they tend to gravitate more towards music radio or um, news radio, all news radio, not necessarily news talk. And they kind of leave the news talk format to a lot of the men. But uh, I won't argue with your premise there, Larry. I think there could be a lot more women given opportunities in the world of talk radio. And I have a long list of people. In fact, even before I worked at the uh, at WABC in New York, the, I wrote a list 
of the pro- for the prior program director. I met with him because he had asked me to come back and produce Curtis and Kuby. Ultimately, I decided not to because I was pursuing another opportunity, another radio station. And he told me he was looking to hire a woman. And I made a list of women that he could consider hiring to partner, I think, with Pat Kiernan. I made a list of 100 women that I thought would be good. Much like Mitt Romney, I have binders full of women. And uh, one of the women that he, that I recommended that he then gave an opportunity to and hired, and she she's back at WABC in New York now, was Rita Cosby. And uh, I think there's a lot of folks that, that could do well, and a lot of folks that have done well. Monica Crowley is another one. Dr. Judy Kuriansky. There's many others. But um, certainly you're right. Uh, if you look at the top 100 talkers in the country, I think maybe at least 70 of them happen to be men. And, uh, and there should be more women given an opportunity. 1-800-848-9222. Let's say hello to one of those women right now, Loretta in Brooklyn. Hello, Loretta. Good morning. Um... Morning. Um, my oh Frank, my mind is a blank. That's all right. Um, Mine too. I have a, a question. Uh, you believe in uh, organ donation, right? Right. Would you consider uniform body donation, or is that uh, like a bit far out for you? Well, I'm open to it. So, um, in, in you know, when you say uniform body donation, that means I would donate my body to medical science. Well, that's how I'm doing it, but not necessarily. The skin is the largest organ of the body, and your skin can be used for burn victims. Uh, I, I, I am, the rest, if acceptable, is going to the med students, because when you're in the hospital a few times, as I've been, you find out exactly what they don't know, and they don't know a lot. They constantly need to learn. So um, nobody thinks about the skin. Yeah, it's My a great brother. point, Loretta. I'll be honest, I hadn't thought about it much until this conversation. And, um, you know, it, it is something that I will give give further thought to. And it's something I'll, I'll probably have to make arrangements uh, sooner for rather than later. What were you going to say about your brother, though? He had his skin grafted in the back of his leg because he was in a motorcycle accident. Well, yeah, so it's such an important point that you raise, and it's not one that I've given much thought to, but uh, but I will going forward. I have to make a – thank you for the call, Loretta. I have to come to a, a, a thought here about what I'm going to do realistically in terms of getting my body cryogenically frozen. I, I think the most realistic situation for me is just to have my head cryogenically frozen and then uh, I'm open to just donating the rest, including my skin and everything else. That's, um, I think, right? I mean, it's the, I think that's probably the way to go. Probably what I'll do. But um, I, I will give it some more thought. 800-848-9222. Three open lines, and we are going to give a prize out to whomever comes up with the best question this hour, as judged by Alex Barnard, uh, Matt Blaze, and uh, Kenneth. Let me say hello to Jerry in New Jersey. Hello, Jerry. Hey, Frank. Hey, while using the restroom, what is the correct way? Wiping from front to back or back to front? You know, it's funny. It's something I always hear people mention this, but it's not really something that I ever thought about. I, I just kind of do it. I'm trying to think what I do. Um, I think I go I think I go back to front, but I don't know. I, honestly, I don't really think about it. Next time I go, I will I will take note of it. And, um, and if I remember to report back, I will. But I don't know what the correct way is. I mean, if you think about it, I would. Th- yeah, I think I go back to front. 
But if you think about it, I mean, I guess you would want your, you know, your that soiled toilet tissue away from your, you know, intimate areas. So I would think if you're looking at a textbook, the correct way is front to back. But um, I think, again, I, it's not something that I've that I've ever paid any attention to. You kind of just do it. But I think I go back to front, right, for whatever it's worth. But I'll, I'll, I'll take note the next time that I do this. One, two, three, four open lines, 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your calls straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Guitarist for the Kinks, Dave Davies, is 76 years old today. So happy birthday, Dave Davies. And uh, I'm a big fan of the Kinks. Always have been. They're just terrific. All right. 800-848-9222. We are doing a, an opportunity where we give you each and every week for one hour a week where you control the subject that we discuss and you get to ask a question that you're curious about. Could be about anything. Could be about politics. Could be about Atlantic City. Could be about sports, gambling, pro wrestling. Uh, you need advice about something. You have a question about my personal history. Whatever the question is, uh, you want to know an inside radio story. You want to know something that I've witnessed. You want to know my opinion about something. Anything that you're genuinely curious about, we do for the first hour of this program as part of... The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. One line open at 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. I'm going to try and get to people in the order in which they've been holding. Igor is in New Jersey. Hello, Igor. Hey, greetings, Frank. Before I get to my main question, I wanted to ask you if you have an opinion on why do radio stations in the age of smartphones still have traffic reports? You know, I am one. I think the the reason is because a lot of people still do listen on the radio, uh, number one. And I still listen to the radio for traffic as I'm driving in. But I am of the belief that uh, there could be a bit less of that. Now, I, I'm hesitant to say that because a lot of my fi- my best friends in radio are traffic reporters, and I'm not looking to cost any of them a job. But I think if you're a talk station, I think they should really specialize in talk. I, I tend to agree with you, but uh, I think um, 
I think it's part of the reason is because people still do, look, myself included, still do rely on uh, the radio to some extent for traffic. Sure. All right. So here's my question for you this week. Um, so what's the, the best and worst advice anybody's ever given you in your life? And what's the best and worst ad- at worst advice you think you've given somebody else? Ooh. Oof. Well, see, that's a question I wish I could think about a lot, uh, a little bit. But um, I'll give you the, what immediately comes to mind. Well, so the best piece of advice was look, I was always interested in pursuing a career in talk radio. And uh, one of the most interesting pieces of advice that I ever got about that, which was always my career aspiration, wasn't even really directed towards me. It was uh, Rush Limbaugh giving a, a, a caller a piece of advice about pursuing a career in talk radio. And this is about 25, 30 years ago. And what he said to the caller, and I really took this to heart, what he said was, and uh, this was this, uh, and he gave ten pieces of advice, and I still have. I wrote them out at the time, and I still have them hanging in my office, and I look at them every day. But w- the number two piece of advice was, and this is good advice for everybody, not just people that want to pursue a career in, in broadcasting, but was learn how to read, write, and speak the English language to the best of your ability because um, what you'll do if you know how to read, write, and speak the English language well, whether it's true or not, you will convince people that you're very intelligent. And that's certainly been the case with me. I am at best of average intelligence, but because I I have put a lot of effort into learning how to read well, speak well, and I think write well, uh, people are of the mistaken impression that I'm smarter than than the average person, which I'm not. Scott uh, Lebedo was here the other day. He wrote in the book to Frank Morano, the smartest person, the smartest guy I know. Now, I know some of the people Scott knows, and I promise you I am not the smartest person that he knows, but he thinks I am because I can string two sentences together. In terms of the worst people, Piece of advice, you know, it's funny. I've gotten a lot of poor pieces of advice, but one of them will stay in the same field, uh, which is you know the one I'm talking about, talk radio, was from Ron Kuby. And Ron Kuby, I was his intern, and uh, he was very taken with me, very impressed with me, and he wanted to help me with whatever my career aspirations were. And uh, I and and I said I wanted to be a talk show host, and Ron said that's not a career that you should aspire to. He said. That's something that may or may not happen. That's not something that you should make a goal. And um, I talked to Curtis about that, and Curtis said that that was very poor advice. And uh, I've come to believe that uh, that Curtis was right and Ron was wrong, at least in my case. 800-848-9222. In terms of advice that I've given to people, I don't know. Poor advice. that I, I mean, obviously, if I knew it was bad advice, I wouldn't give it. But also... If um, if I gave bad advice and then it didn't work out for the person that I was giving advice to, then I don't think they would come back to me and say, hey, you know that advice you gave me? That was terrible. So I, I, that one I'd really need to consider. If someone out there, if there's anyone out there that I've given advice to and it's worked out well for you or poorly for you, uh, give me a call and let me know. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Henry in question. Hello, Henry. Hi, good evening. Uh, I wonder if you're aware of something called the sore losers law uh, relating to primary elections? Yes, I am aware. Yes. And uh, should that be adopted for New York State? No, no, 
No, uh, if people don't know what Henry is talking about, thanks for the call, Henry. So some states have what's called a sore loser law, which is um, if you're a Republican and you or a Democrat, whatever, if you're a Republican and you run in a Republican primary, then and you lose that primary, there are certain states that prohibit you from running in the general election. And the reason that should not be adopted is because sometimes the will of the Republican electorate or the will of the Democratic electorate don't reflect the will of the voters. Their primaries are fine, right? But parties have their selection process and the voters have theirs. So in Connecticut, for instance, Joe Lieberman lost a Democratic primary, but yet he was elected to the U.S. Senate by all the voters of Connecticut. If he's the guy that all the voters of Connecticut wanted to represent them, why should they have been denied that opportunity? They shouldn't be. In Alaska, Lisa Murkowski lost a Republican primary in, I believe it was uh, 2010, might have been 2008, uh, 2010 or 2008. And, And it was, yeah, 2010. And if she loses the primary and then she won as a write in, why would she? not be given the opportunity to be on the ballot. She certainly should be able to. In New York, John Lindsay, when he was running for re-election, lost the Republican primary and then got elected as a third-party candidate. In my view, uh, whatever you do in the primary should absolutely have no bearing on whether you have the right to run in the general election. Everybody should have the right to run. There should be none of these artificial barriers keeping you off the uh, the ballot. I believe they're unconstitutional. So far, the courts have not agreed with me, but that's not the first time that the courts have uh, have not agreed with me. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. One open line if you have a question. Peter is in Queens. Hello, Peter. Hello, how are you doing? Good. I have a question. I'm a Democrat, and I'm, I'm thinking of going uh, independent, but I'm confused. What do I lose if I change parties? You live in New York State, right? You live in New York City? Uh, Queens. Yeah, So, if, York, if, and you're yeah. a voter in New York. You're not one of these guys that lives in New York but votes in Florida or Jersey or Pennsylvania. Or no, no, I, yeah. I, don't, I only vote in New York. Okay, so then you— I've been a Democrat for 50 years. Right, so what you would lose is uh, three things. You would not be able to vote in uh, any party's primary election in New York unless they change the rules. You couldn't vote in the Democratic primary or the Republican primary or the conservative primary or the working families party. So um, maybe that's an issue for you. Maybe it's not. That's the first thing you lose. The second thing you lose is the right to sign a petition for other candidates seeking to run as a Democrat. And the third thing you lose is if you ever wanted to run for office as a Democrat yourself, you would need a special permission from the party called a Wilson Pakula in order to do so. So you couldn't vote in a primary, you can't sign a Democratic petition, and you uh, would not be able to run as a Democrat unless they gave you a special permission to do so. Okay, because now I'm not sure what I should do, because I certainly can't uh, vote Democrat anymore, that's for sure. Yeah, well, look, I know a lot of people in Queens and elsewhere that um, are what I call Democrat in name only. They don't vote for Democrat in the general election, but they stay registered Democrat so that they could vote for the more sane person in Democratic primaries. I wish more of those people would actually run for Democratic 
party office, county committee and state committee, and kind of take the Democratic Party back from some of the uh, some of the crazies uh, to some extent. I don't want to marginalize anyone, but I consider them a little offbeat, a little fringe, who have come to dominate some aspects of the party on a on a, a you know on that kind of a, a basis. Look, I am an independent because um, in my conscience. I can't really get on board with being a Republican or a Democrat right now. I like a lot of Republicans. I like a lot of Democrats. It's just not something I could do in my heart heart of hearts. But if you're looking for a strategic value, my sister, for instance, uh, three years ago, she was registering to vote. And she said, I'm not sure if I should register Democrat or register independent. And I said, well, if those are your two uh, options, what you should do is register Democrat, because there's going to be a very competitive Democrat primary for mayor. And if you're registered Democrat, you'll get to vote in that primary and in all likelihood decide who the next mayor is. If you're an independent, you can't. Now, if your uh, conscience doesn't let you do that, then it doesn't. But if you're looking for just a strategic way to be influential, uh, it's it's tough to argue in a Democratic area. And again, I don't know what part of Queens you're in because there are a lot of Republican areas in Queens these days especially. But in a Democratic area, it's tough to argue with the strategy of um, registering as a Democrat so that you can have some influence in a Democratic primary. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Let me say hello to uh, Pam in Brooklyn. Hello, Pam. Hi, Frank. What areas in New York are considered Hell's Kitchen and what? Uh, why was it named Hell's Kitchen? Well, um, I think, you know, uh, I'm not sure of the, the etymology. Do you know? And is this like, uh, are, are, you, are you quizzing mm-hmm. me? No, I don't know. Um, you mentioned Hell's Kitchen a little earlier. That's why I wanted to, you know, I'm asking the question. Yeah, well, so uh, I will look up the etymology because I, I used to know this. But the neighborhood, uh, it's basically Midtown West, right? So basically it's, uh, I think, 34th Street on on the south, maybe all the way up to uh, 58th Street to the north. It's basically 8th Avenue um, to the east and all the way to the West Side Highway. So it's basically Midtown West. But in terms of why it's called Hell's Kitchen, um, I, 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 I'd have to look that one up, actually. I, I don't know, uh, but I will look that one up and get uh, get back to folks. But, yeah, it's, it's essentially Midtown West. Okay. All right. Thank, thank you, Pam. That's a good question, though. Uh, I did know that because I always thought that was such a cool name for a neighborhood and I, I did I did research the etymology of it. So, okay, I remember why I don't remember it. I just looked this up. There are a whole bunch of potential explanations for the original name, and it's inconclusive. It's inconclusive. So an early use of the phrase appears in a comment that Davy Crockett made about another notorious Irish slum in Manhattan, Five Points. And according to the Irish Cultural Society of the Garden City area, This is what they said. When in 1835, Davy Crockett said, in my part of the country, when you meet an Irishman, you find a first rate gentleman. But these are worse than savages. They are too mean to swab Hell's Kitchen. And he was referring to the uh, five points. Other people have other theories as to where it came from. But I don't think there's a consensus. Uh, Some people say it's in German derivation. Some people say it has to do with other things. I don't know. um, I don't know where it came from. I don't think anybody knows. I think that's one of those things a lot of people have theories about. But uh, I don't think anybody knows for sure. We'll try and get in at least one more uh, one more question here. Let me say hello to Ray in the Bronx. Hello, Ray. Uh, fine. Two quick questions. Did you yep. ever pray to St. Anthony's for your keys to uh, get them back? 
I, I, I didn't, but I found them anyway. <laughs> you did? Oh, great. I didn't know that. All right. The other question, if there was one person's cell phone number that you could reach out to any time, a politician, world leader, entertainer, who would it be? Oh, that's a good one. Look, uh, a person's cell phone that I wish I could reach out to any time. Oh, um, let me think about that. Uh, gee, that's a good one. One person's cell phone. So they, somebody that I would text and they'd text back. <sighs> one person. It's a good question. I'm going to say maybe Mike Bloomberg. Because I, I feel like there's a lot of causes that I'm involved with that Mike Bloomberg would support. And I feel like there are a lot of instances where I could ask for his advice and I don't have a way of getting in touch with him. Best question. That's it, Ray in the Bronx. Ray in the Bronx, call back. We have a prize for you. Until then, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Dumb as a dodo or dumb as a dodo bird. Uh, If you've ever wondered where that comes from, it turns out they may not have been that dumb, number one. But I I think it comes from the fact that they were dumb enough to get themselves hunted to extinction. But also the expression goes that they were these three foot tall flightless birds were not afraid of. Of the European sailors who hunted them to extinction on the island of Mauritius. They didn't do anything to run away, supposedly. That's the story. And again, like most stories, it's not exactly true. But they didn't do anything to run away from these European sailors who hunted them to death. And so they went extinct because, the expression goes, they were so dumb. Well, now they may be coming back. I'm not joking. This is for real. So you might remember... A year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, we did a segment, and I was overwhelmed at the number of people commenting on this and weighing in on this, about a company that was trying to bring back the woolly mammoth, which is also extinct. And I asked the question, is that appropriate? And a lot of people brought up very strong arguments on both sides. Now those same people, That same company that is trying to bring back the woolly mammoth, that same group is trying to bring back the dodo bird. So we don't know if the dodo bird is actually going to be coming back anytime soon, but this company is working on technologies to bring back extinct species, and it has attracted more investors while a lot of other scientists are skeptical that such feats are possible, and if they are possible, they're skeptical about whether it's a good idea or not. The company is called Colossal Biosciences, 
And they first announced this ambitious plan, which we covered, which I found very interesting, to revive the woolly mammoth two years ago. Well, as it stands now, I was doing a lot of walking around today, and at least in Midtown, I don't see any woolly mammoths walking around. Now, this week, on Tuesday, they said uh, they want to bring back the dodo bird. Ben Lom, we got to get him on the show. I'm going to make a note because he seems like an interesting guy. Ben Lom. Ben Lom or Ben Lam is an entrepreneur, very successful entrepreneur, and he's the co-founder and CEO of this company, Colossal. The company was formed, has formed a division to focus on bird-related genetic technologies. The last dodo, a flightless bird about the size of a turkey, was killed in 1681 on the Indian Ocean island of Mauritius. No one's seen one in about 400 years. This Dallas company, which launched two years ago, also announced on Tuesday that it had raised an additional $150 million in funding. To date, listen to this, to date it has raised $225 million from wide-ranging investors that include United States Innovative Technology, Briar Capital, InQtel, that's the CIA's venture capital firm, which invests in technology. The prospect of bringing the dodo back isn't expected to directly make this company money. But the generic tool, the genetic tools, I should say, and equipment that the company develops to try to do it may have other uses, including for human health care. For example, Colossal is now testing tools to tweak several parts of the genome simultaneously. It's also working on technologies for what is sometimes called an artificial womb. The dodo's closest living relative is the Nicobar pigeon. And uh, the, the team at Colossal plans to study the DNA differences between the Nicobar pigeon and the dodo to understand what are the genes that really make a dodo a dodo. And the team might then attempt to edit the Nicobar pigeon cells to make them resemble dodo cells, and it might be possible to put these tweaked cells into developing eggs of other birds, such as pigeons or chickens, to create offspring that may in turn naturally produce dodo eggs. So the concept right now is in a very early theoretical stage for dodos. But because animals are a product of both their genetics and their environment, which has changed dramatically since the 1600s. It's, they don't think anyway, the scientists don't think, that it's possible to create a 100% identical copy of something that's gone. So basically, if they are successful in creating a new dodo, this 21st century dodo would be a dodo 2.0. Um, or dodo 2.do, okay? Other scientists wonder if this is even advisable to try and question whether these attempts at de-extinction divert attention and money away from efforts to save species that are still on this earth, still alive, and in some cases still striving to survive. You remember that scene in Jurassic Park where um, Jeff Goldblum is talking with the the, the wealthy guy, the white-haired guy with the beard, and he's saying, 
your scientists have spent so much time and effort, whatever he says, I'm paraphrasing here. He basically says your scientists have spent so much time trying to see if they could do something. They didn't spend any time thinking if they should do something. Well, $225 million, that buys a lot of research, that buys a lot of technology. And so my question for you is basically that. I want you to answer the should question. Understand, the dodo was hunted to extinction by human beings. The reason there are no dodos is because of us. So, given that, should scientists, if they can, whether it's Colossal or some other country or some other company or some hybrid of government and private sector, should they, if they can, if they could figure out a way, should they bring back the dodo? What do you think and why? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. I'm curious what you think from an ethical perspective because uh, it does strike me as a little bit playing God. And um, I, I am kind of of the belief that maybe we should let sleeping dodos lie. That maybe, okay, that ship has sailed. It's a shame that humans caused the extinction of the dodo, but I do worry about maybe some of the unforeseen consequences of tweaking different animals and messing around with cells and planting them in other birds and getting birds to uh, have offspring that are not their own offspring but are this this dodo hybrid offspring. I think I'm of the opinion and in the camp that maybe this is technology or money that's better used on salvaging existing species. But I'm game. If you have another explanation or if you want to make a strong case for the dodo, and look, I'm curious to see a dodo. I'm curious to see a woolly mammoth. But not not too close on the woolly mammoth front. But if you have a thought on this as to whether or not we should bring back the dodo, tell me. 800-848-9222. For instance, Duke University ecologist Stuart Pym who has no connection to this company, Colossal, said there's a real hazard in saying that if we destroy nature, we can just put it back together because we can't. And where on earth would you put a woolly mammoth other than in a cage? That was about the woolly mammoth discussion. On a practical level, some conservation biologists familiar with captive breeding programs say that it can be tricky for zoo-bred animals to ever adapt to the wild. Boris Worm, a biologist at the university at a university in uh, Nova Scotia, of course his name is Worm, said it helps if, that if they can learn from other wild animals of their kind, an advantage that potential dodos and woolly mammoths won't have. Pre- this is what Worm said. Preventing species from going extinct in the first place should be our priority, and in most cases, it's a lot cheaper. I kind of hear that. What do you think? Bring back the dodo, yay or nay? 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Bob in Manhattan. Bob, do you want to bring back the dodo? Uh, yeah, I don't see a problem with it. It might be a great food source. However, bringing it back is a complete fantasy, and I'll tell you why. It's much more likely you could bring back a woolly mammoth because they found their frozen bodies 
under the ice. And you can get genetic material from that. You can't from a dodo. There isn't a single example of any body of a dodo found. They've completely disintegrated and rotted. It's a fantasy. However, it's much more likely you can, you can resurrect a, a woolly mammoth because there's bodies of them under the ice. They're completely frozen and in a relatively good state. Okay, well, let's. However, what do you what What are you going to do with a woolly mammoth? Well, um, that's exactly what. Have that's zoo exactly, in Siberia, right? Well, that's exactly what some people are saying: is why do this if you where are you going to put it other than put it in a cage? So, what's the point? Why would you want to bring back the woolly mammoth? I, I wouldn't, but a dodo might be a great food source. All right, well, f- fair enough, Bob. To Bob's point, despite the popular belief that dodo meat was inedible because of its revolting taste, dodos were actually eaten by those early settlers, even considered to be a delicacy by some. Let me tell you, I am not eating a dodo. No way. 800-848-9222. Gary is in Inwood. Gary, are we bringing back the dodo? What do you think? Absolutely. And first of all, I'd like to see the woolly mammoth. The point you made about the cage is no. But you would put the, an animal like that in its natural climate, which would be a frigid, cold climate. And the other part is uh, playing God. Science, does, science doesn't deal with God. It deals with science. So the God factor wouldn't be in there in any way, shape, or form. All right. Well, but so, um, okay. So, but what is the value, for instance, of bringing what back is, the what's dodo? The, the, value of that, the value is that you could actually do this. What would be the, non, what would be the downside? Well, the downside is what I just mentioned, right? That if we're going to spend $225 million to develop the technology to do this, maybe that's $225 million better spent on uh, on salvaging existing species. Additionally, uh, to Boris Worm's point, and I love quoting Boris Worm because his name is Boris Worm. To Boris Worm's point, if we send the message to the world that eh, it's okay, it's like the humpback whales in Star Trek Four. Hunt these animals to extinction. We could bring them back eventually anyway. Does that send kind of the message to the public that, all right, we don't have to be too careful about salvaging these animals? I, I do get concerned about that as well. 800-848-9222. Charlie is in Brooklyn. Hello, Charlie. Hey, how are you? Great. Thanks for asking. Good to be on the line with you. Yes, you know, just like any other thing that is extinct is going extinct these days, of course we have to bring back any way we can bring back the dodo bird, just like anything else. No, no, but understand the difference between what you're saying, though. So the dodo has not been seen on this planet in over 350 years. We're not talking about an animal that is almost extinct, that we're trying to help repopulate or rebuild its population like we did with the bald eagle. This is an animal that no person alive has seen. Well, then why not bring it back? All right, look, I can't argue with that, Charlie. So, what, what do you? Bring it back. So, if what, we can with the technology we have today in science, why not? Well, then, this is something that a new generation should see. Let's take it a step further, then, right? Let's take that movie, Jurassic Park. Let's say that they could figure out a way to bring back the, um, you know, the, some dinosaurs, the pterodactyl or the tyrannosaurus. Should we do that? That is something that may be destructive, that, that that could hurt our society. So I don't know about something that big. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. It will, this is something that should be questioned all the way around. 
Well, again, that's what I'm, I'm doing here and questioning it, Charlie. And, and again, I come back to that Jeff Goldblum question of just because we could do a thing, should we? So far, the consensus seems to be that we should. This is a very pro-dodo crowd. I had no idea we were filled with such dodo partisans. 800-848-9222. Hey, very excited. In um, just a minute, we're going to talk with Dana Michelle. Dana Michelle is a talk show host. She's an attorney. She's the founder of something called the Homecoming Challenge. And uh, she was very popular last time she was here, and I'm excited to have her back. Uh, I told her whenever she's in New York, let me know and we'll have her back. And uh, she has some news for us. Some good news, some bad news. We'll get into it all. Uh, It's an interview that you're not going to want to miss. She's an interesting person. Joe is in Ron Konkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Another great show. Before I say what i got to say, have a great weekend. Thank you. And, um, you know, you're talking about the dodo birds. I was telling Kenneth, look what's running the White House right now. That's what was running the White House. All right, Joe. Thank you. Have a good weekend. I knew we weren't going to make it out of here without somebody making it political. Somebody saying, oh, Biden's dumb as a dodo or Trump is dumb as a dodo. That's what I get for trying to have a serious dodo discussion. But how often can you say dodo on the radio, right? I mean, in a 15-minute period of time, that's got to be a dodo record, the amount of times I've just said the word dodo. And I have to tell you, it's pretty fun. Dodo, dodo, dodo. Love it. All right, uh, Dana Michelle is here. We're going to talk with her about the homecoming challenge, about the legal profession, and uh, about some of these um, the, these layoffs that are coming to te- big tech companies. I'm also very eager. She's an attorney. I'm eager to get her take on uh, how AI is affecting the legal profession as well. So we'll get into that and a, a bunch of other things. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Uh, we'll talk with Dana Michelle straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Gang uh, by uh, Joanna. Rumor has it it's a favorite of uh, Dana Mitchell. Michelle, excuse me. Well, well, cool. Yeah, Joanna. I said Joanna. Uh, no, did I say it's Cool in the Gang by Joanna? All right. Well, good thing uh, Dana wasn't mic'd at the and, time. And Nobody cool heard wants the, all their props. the correction. I want to dedicate this to Joanna Castle Miller, who is a playwright in New York today, and it's That's her awesome. birthday today. And I know her a little bit. I haven't seen her in about uh, 20 years. But I reached out to her. I said, Joanna, it's your birthday, and uh, I want to dedicate a song or two tomorrow of your choosing. She did not respond. So we chose this in her her stead. She actually, she's a very interesting lady. She's a liberal, but her father is an arch, arch conservative, and he ran uh, for president in 2016, and the two of them 
did a reality show together. I think it's called Red, White, and Castle. But, you know, she didn't come on. She didn't get back to me with my bumper music request, so so be it. Dana Michelle is here. She is a talk show host, an attorney, and the founder of something called the Homecoming Challenge. And uh, Dana was a big hit last time she was on the show, so we told her whenever she's in New York, she has to make this show a an absolute must-stop. And uh, true to her word, she has indeed done so. Hello, Dana. Hello. Can I just say, first of all, I, I've always wanted to have a song named after me. There are no Dana songs? There, there are no Dana songs. I don't believe that. There's got to be a Dana song. There's a hip-hop artist, Dana Dane with fame. He did a song called Cinderella, other songs uh, in the old-school hip-hop industry, but I uh, I never had a song named after me. So I, I have a tough time believing I'm that serious. there are no, there, no Dana songs. I mean, but happy happy birthday to Joanna. I hope she's awake for her shout-out and yeah. her, her entire song. Probably not. She didn't get back to me. So. Well, there's that. Um, so there's that. Hey, uh, for people that are unfamiliar with your history, uh, you have a, a lengthy resume. As I mentioned, attorney, talk show host, founder of the Homecoming Challenge. Remind people, what is the Homecoming Challenge? The Homecoming Challenge is a go-back, give-back campaign that we started. Uh, my co-founder, Chris Evans, and I started in 2017 on a college campus, Morehouse and Spelman College, two HBCUs in Atlanta, the concept is you go back to your freshman dorm, you go back to your freshman dorm room, and you surprise the students in that room um, who are currently there with a little bit of money, because these kids love cash these days. Uh, I've heard that. They, they love cash. Money, money talks. Um, but what I think is more valuable and priceless is your advice, your wisdom. I think a lot of us, as we move in this, in this mid-age life, we forget about how awesome we are, and we, we're so caught up in... in Bills, kids, aging parents, life, career. Uh, but to a freshman student, I think we are absolutely incredible. And we can really make a difference in their lives with some encouragement and mentoring. Uh, a fellow called me last hour, and I didn't have a good answer uh, to this, but he asked what the best piece and the worst piece of advice that I've ever gotten or or given was. I'll ask you the same thing. When you, whether it was when you were a college student or any other point in your life, what's the best piece of advice you've gotten and the worst? I think the best piece of advice that I've gotten is largely, you know, kind of follow your dreams. Mm. You know, follow your heart. Um, trust your gut. Go with those instincts. Um, and I think the worst advice that I've gotten, I can't remember it specifically. I mean, I I know one, which is someone who told me that I needed to um, explore my options when it came to law school and choosing a law school. Um, he thought my ambitions were too high. I think that anyone who's trying to limit you, now there's a difference between sound advice when someone's like, listen, you know, you want to be a bungee jumper, you haven't taken practice lessons, you know, th th there are limitations. But I think when when people are trying to limit you or put you in a box or hold you back, None of that advice is, is really solid. And oftentimes you have to figure out, are people operating out of fear and projecting that on you, you know, in their advice? Um, or is it really sincere and genuine and helpful? Well, so how do you know, uh, for instance, my, my brother, he's, he's a Ph.D., but he told me uh, and whoever else happened to be in the room six, seven months ago that he's decided he wants to pursue a career as a Formula One driver. So his wife. His, can he drive? Is his driving record? <laughs> no. I mean, exactly. yeah, he could drive. But I said, Nick, why don't you start with like a go-kart or something? And of course, his wife, you know, was vetoing this like crazy. She didn't think it was a good idea. But. 
both my sister-in-law and me, we were coming from a place of, you know, I think practicality and concern about him. But you don't want to stifle anybody's aspirations. How do you know whether someone, when they say to you, all right, maybe you shouldn't give up your whole career and become a, a pop singer. How do you know whether this is from a practical place and a concerned place versus a, oh, they don't, just don't want me to follow my dreams place? Well, where does it come from, right? You know, you said this is your brother? Yeah. You know, has he done anything in the professional space with respect to race car no, driving? No, not a, not so a it's, thing. So it's, it's a whim. Because there there's a, a lot of things. Like, and, I, and kids these days, right? You've got kids. I've right. got kids. These kids have aspirations that, that turn overnight. You know, they wake up one day and they want to be a race car driver. They wake up the next day, they want to be a doctor. They wake up, they want to be, I, I talk to my kids often about music because I'm, they're resistant to their musical lessons, right? But they want to be pros at it. Mm. My daughter plays piano. She wants to be Alicia Keys. My son plays the trumpet. He wants to be Louis Armstrong. But it doesn't happen overnight. Practice. Mm. You know, what, what are you putting into your craft? How much are you investing in yourself in your dream. Thus far, my son's aspirations mostly involve getting into the dishwasher, and he is... Is he succeeding? <laughs> is he crushing that? Is he crushing that? He's putting in a lot of effort. He's doing it. That's, That's sure. what I'm talking about. He is the, dish, the dishwasher connoisseur. So if people want to get involved in the Homecoming Challenge, or if they want to hear some of the uh, success stories, or maybe take part in this for, the, for themselves, yeah. what can they do? What's the best way for them to do you that? You can follow the Homecoming Challenge on Instagram, Homecoming Challenge, um, hashtag I mean, excuse me, uh, at Homecoming Challenge and on Facebook at Homecoming Challenge. Um, my show, Dana Being Dana, is also a place where you can find information and stuff about the Homecoming Challenge. We are gearing up for next year uh, because none of us on the board work full time for the Homecoming Challenge. It's we, we do it in stages and phases. And so we're kind of in our off season now uh, because we are in between graduation, which is one time where alums come to campus, which is coming up. And the homecoming season, the homecoming football season, um, or winter sports, because some schools have basketball. And that's when we are primarily on campus. We're talking with Dana Michelle. If you want to learn more about her, you can check out her website, DanaBeingDana.com. There's some great uh, clips of her show on there as well, DanaBeingDana.com. And you should, if you're interested in this, follow the uh, the Homecoming Challenge on uh, Facebook and Instagram. It's a, a terrific thing. Now, meantime, maybe that person that was cautioning you about uh, law school was right. I understand you were actually just uh, laid off from the law firm that you were working with. I was, but it wasn't, it wasn't law school. That person encouraged me to not apply to some of the top law schools in the country and and that was a mistake but after yes after practicing for 15 years I was laid off from my company um, I'm in tech uh, so I'm a lawyer working in the tech industry and yes I was I was laid off along with the rest of my U.S. workforce mm. we were, it was moved overseas oh I um, hate that that's ter- I'm sorry yeah I mean it's it is it, I mean it's been an interesting week I would say how um, long ago did this happen a week last a week Wednesday ago. Wow. Last Wednesday. Um, I got the call first. And interestingly enough, I was taping for television on that day. So I had to hold it together. Oh. I called the station. I said, I lost my job today. I said, but we've got two tapings, two shows, and we're going to crush that. And that's exactly what we did. Good for you. Um, but thereafter, I, I scheduled a meeting with my team, my onshore team, because I was aware that everyone was going to get that news. Um, there's 10 of us total. And we met last Thursday. Uh, together and we we just talked about what's going on what's happening we've met since then we met today actually and um the tech industry has been hit hard a lot of companies um have have laid off thousands of people but you know in sitting this 
with this for a week. You know, I've got some advice. Can I share it with Please, you? Please, yeah. Because I think it's super important because I think layoffs right now. And this probably applies to people even that don't work in the tech industry, but that might be facing yeah. a layoff in any Well, industry. I think we're headed towards a recession. Mm-hmm. And I think um, the economy is tightening up. Companies are tightening up their budgets. Um, they, had had, they had a travel ban at my company before this happened, um, in addition to other layoffs in different divisions. But I think that um, it's an opportunity to reassess. You know, number one, it's about it's about taking a break. I've gone full speed ahead. I'm a single mom, so I um, support my children. I support my family. And so for me, it's important to find my next role and figure out what I'm doing next. But I also have been encouraged repeatedly to find ways to take a break, um, sit in this moment, uh, think about what I really want to do. Because for the past five years, I've really toggled between – media, you know, with, with the shows and the homecoming challenge and things like that and my professional career. So it's an opportunity in a way that I probably wouldn't have taken on my own, but to, uh, to take a break and to think about what I want to do. A lot of people, uh, facing a layoff that look, even a lot of people that might be making a decent living, they find themselves very often, especially if you have children, especially if you live in a place like uh, New York or a place that's expensive to live, find themselves almost living paycheck to paycheck. Right. And uh, they uh, may not have the luxury of taking time to breathe because they're immediately faced with how am I going to pay the rent, the mortgage next yep. month? What advice do you have for people in terms of planning their next step uh, professionally while at the same time Worrying about the pay, paying the bills that are coming due next week or next month. Oh, part of it is about it's a mental break, right? You know, I've I've set my resume out. You know, I've started I have started interviewing for jobs, um, but it's an opportunity to pause and think about what do you really want to do? Because so often when people come out of school, they go right into the workforce, um, and then they start they go right into all the different aspects of mm. their life. They're having babies, they're getting married. You know, they're doing what they've always thought. They were supposed to be doing as an adult or not. Right. They're making mistakes. They're learning from those. They're rebounding from those. Uh, and I think anytime you have this kind of, you know, how people say the cliche of it's sometimes a setback right. is a setup. You know, what what is this? A, you know, what is the reason behind this? What is the purpose? Um, is there an opportunity for you to do something different? What do you really want to do? Uh, when I, I I posted, I talked about being laid off about being back in the job market. And um, a really good friend of mine was like, you shouldn't tell people. You shouldn't like, oh, my gosh, why are you sharing that? Why are you telling people? And I want to kind of break the stigma of layoffs, setbacks, changes, you know, divergent paths, because I think they can be opportunities. Mm. And for me, by being quite public about my transition and my job situation, has yielded so many people reaching out to me and offering, you know, support, uh, sympathy, networking, which has really, really been great. And and one of the things that I've said, this has been a lesson um, not only just for me but for my children, and I've shared all of this with them. Uh, my daughter said that because I'm, I'm from Chicago, right? I came here from Chicago. Uh, my daughter said the market – for snow removal, for shoveling snow, <laughs> is great right now. And so she's offered to support us by shoveling snow. My son uh, informed me that he had money, um, but he was curious as to whether or not I would pay him back in this loan. He's 14. <laughs> she will be 12 this weekend. Um, so what was my, the answer to that? What did you tell him? 
I, oh, would I pay him back? I was yeah. like, first of all, I don't think you have the kind of money that we need. But I, um, I, I thought it was cute. You know, I, I, I appreciated them and their support. Um, I wanted to alleviate their fears that, and I was very transparent with them because I felt like they're old enough to understand the lessons in this. And one of the lessons is about networking, about building your network, and some of the best advice that I have. And it applies both to the work that I've done in the Homecoming Challenge and my legal profession and my, my team that I work with. Um, I work with some of the best lawyers around, and networking is so important. You never underestimate the power of relationship building and making connections with people, particularly when you don't even need them, because the this is the type of time where you determine you know how your network has shown up for you. Um, or how they will show up for you in the ways that you show up for them. And so um, building that network, even when you don't need anything, is crucial. Not only are you solidifying great friendships and relationships, um, but you're you're setting yourself up in the future to be able to call on people when you need it. You can call on people for great things. Hey, you know, this great thing happened to me. Come celebrate. Um, but also when there is a, 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 a tough time, a layoff, a death, um, a transition, um, there's so many things that happen in life, and we all need each other. I think support is so important. If we've learned anything over the past couple of years, it's how important the human connection is and connecting with one another and supporting one another. Uh, Dana Michelle is here. You can check out her website, DanaBeingDana.com. It's so funny that you emphasize the importance of uh, – by the way, I'm being deluged with songs about Dana, by the way. I'm gonna Am sh- I I'm getting gonna some sh- songs? Because I need some songs. all these with you. Joanna, I, I'm such a hater. Like, seriously. <laughs> I mean, I could use my own songs. But um, we're gonna, we have some good ones. Apparently, there's a Billy Cobham song. There's, uh, there's a few others. Right, which that sounds amazing. I want a soundtrack. Uh, literally, seven people have emailed me all You guys are the best. Absolutely the best. Dana. I love this. But, I'm coming see, back. To talk about the power of a network. But uh, uh, in listening to you talk... <laughs> A friend of mine, he was, um, you know, he was a politician. He was defeated for re-election, and he wasn't sure what he was going to do next. So what he did was, and this was advice that a mentor to him had given years prior, was he made a list of 100 people whose advice that he valued and he he thought were pretty well connected, and he scheduled meetings with all of them, all yes. hundred of them. That's so that is awesome. And, I love that. And solicited their advice about what he should do next. Yeah. And I really that was a pretty important lesson for me about the importance of networking. A lot of people don't, I, I would say almost everybody, nobody plans to be laid off, right? right? But you, So you really do have to kind of do what you d- did and what my friend did in terms of building a network before yep. you ever find yourself in that kind of position. Yep. What kind of networking tips can you give to someone so that, as you said, if it's for a good reason or a poor reason, they're well prepared to galvanize that network into something productive? I think... Being genuine, you know, in your connections. And I think it's really important to show up for people who need you when you don't need anything. I think when you have zero agenda, um, when you're not in dire straits, when there's not an issue, it's a great time to connect with people. But every aspect of your life, it's an opportunity to take to make connections. So when you are in a job situation, for example, look at the people who can influence you. Because um, I think it's a couple of it's a couple of things. One, there's people who can influence you, right? Um, the people who have very strong, uh, powerful things that you can glean, and then there's the people that you just like, mm. right? They they can't really give you anything, but right. but you, you enjoy good, spending time you enjoy with spending them. time right. with them. They're funny. They you know are are by the water cooler, um, and they're and they're good people in your life. Take all that 
you know, and, and stay connected to them. Be genuine in your how are you doing? A lot of times we ask people how we're doing, but we don't mean it. It's insincere. And so I think being sincere in your connections um, and then maintaining those. I'm a big fan of calling. I'm not a big texter. I texted you today, but I'm not a big texter because I enjoy the conversation. I enjoy the face-to-face. I enjoy um, – I'm, I'm a little old school like that. Maybe that's why I got laid off because I write <laughs> I write checks. But I think um, building that network, making those connections, having those conversations um, – And just showing up, not missing some of those milestones, birthdays, uh, anniversaries, milestones, things to celebrate, congratulating people, and just maintaining relationships in their life. It should really be a natural continuation of the relationship that you had initially. Why do you think that uh, we're seeing all these tech companies, including all these big tech companies, go forward with all these uh, these layoffs. What's going on in big tech these days that the carousel is seeming to slow down or stop spinning? I personally think this is a reaction to the pandemic. And, and, and a lot of tech companies think about, like, how much people were spending online, the time they were spending online, the energy, the money. Um, companies had to keep up with that inventory. They had to keep up with all of that. And I think now we're moving into a different life. Um, I think the political season is changing, which influences the economy as well. But I think we're we're seeing some of the repercussions from moving quite quickly and responding to the changing dynamics in the pandemic. Uh, You know, I think there was a lot of consumer purchases, right? A lot of buying, a lot of things online, and uh, a lot of people in the tech space moved to respond to that. And I think that Uh, now that things are changing, I'm not saying that it's retracting or going backwards, but I think it's just moving in a different direction. And so um, in tech, because I was in tech consulting, there's a lot of ebb and flow. You know, whenever there's a recession, consulting's the first thing to go. Your consultants, your contractors, your extra people are the first people that get cut. And so it's, it's a natural progression in a recession for all of your tech companies, all of your consulting companies, um, to have reduction in workforce. Well, it's gonna. I'm wishing you the best of luck, but also the thousands of other workers around the country that are that are uh, similarly situated. One of the things that we've talked about a bit on this program is how uh, artificial intelligence and AI is likely to transform so many different aspects of the economy. And one of the things that people point to pretty pretty readily is the legal profession. And they say that there's a lot of work both internally, not so much uh, being in a courtroom yet, but there's a lot of legal work that could be outsourced to computers in the near future. And I'm wondering, how are you feeling as an attorney, especially the one that has a lot of experience in the tech space about when the prospect? Lost her job. <laughs> well, about the prospect of competing with a robot. Yeah, yeah. I think it's bad uh, enough that you have to compete with humans in other countries. But I mean, what about a robot? Right. Like, seriously. Even robots have songs. I think um, I'm tired of competing. I think, you know, one of the things that I think, um, you know, part of being a lawyer is about exercising good judgment. And and so any good lawyer is going to tell you that that using their good judgment, first of all, they've been trained. Um, they've got great experience in using good judgment, utilizing good judgment. And so to be replaced by a robot you know, for that, there's some things that you really can't necessarily outsource. I think perhaps um, some of the mundane tasks with respect to law um, or easy contracting, it's one of the things that we were exploring at my company. Uh, You know, for example, non-disclosure agreements. They're pretty straightforward. 
Um, it's kind of one of the lower levels of, of contracting that you can do. You and I have secrets. We're going to be talking. We both promise not to share mm-hmm. those secrets. Um, but when you get to more complex transactions, there's a lot of customization with that. And a lot of times, particularly in the nuances of negotiation going back and forth, it's really tough to automate those. And um, that's what I think people are, are cautious of. Um, and sometimes tech goes wrong. And there is an accountability. There's an ethics around um, the practice of law. And how do you hold a robot accountable? Um, when you have a bad lawyer who leads you down the wrong path, you can, there are repercussions for that lawyer. There is incentive to, to give good service, to give good advice. Um, but if you don't have a repercussion for artificial intelligence, you know, how does that work? And so I think a lot of times I think we think technology is great and it's the, it's the way of the future. But there can be a lot of implications, a lot of things that can go wrong with respect to um, is the advice sound? Um, are there ethics? You know, are there lines that we're crossing? What is the implicit bias in the AI? Right. You know, th- there's always bias. And, and how does that impact the outcome? Right. People can be really excited about it until they get a bad decision. Oh, yeah. No, that until they make a move, you know, and and there's so much the issue with about it is that there's so much on the line. I would hate for someone to go to jail because of a bad AI decision, because technology goes wrong or to lose, you know, in cases, the article um, that we had discussed, you know, before about traffic tickets, you know, on some levels, and the, the idea yeah. was and about- if people uh, aren't familiar with this. Basically, there was this uh, this company that uh, fights traffic tickets that was going to use AI to make arguments covertly in traffic court. They were going to have a person with an earpiece take these AI arguments and just parrot them. And then this company was threatened by everybody, every bar association, every regulatory authority saying, you better not do this. There's going to be hell to pay. And sure enough, they backed off, at least for now, on their plan to to do it. But I have to think it's only a matter of time before someone else tries something like that. I think this. it's only a matter of time, and I would have liked to see them go forward um, just to test it, test the legal waters. Waze had the same issue. I don't know if you remember that. The um, technology in, like, it's like the new MapQuest. Right. I mean, I use Waze Me all the too. time. Me too. Me uh, too. You know, there was, a, there was a case in the in the second district here in New York um, where the police sued Waze um, and I don't know. I don't know what their their reason was, but the, the police actually lost, and and Waze was allowed to continue. They talked about how it was hindering um, the police service and their ability to um, and to protect, you know, society or whatever arguments that we're losing. But um, that technology has remained, and you know, people love that. So there's times I think where where, and that's not necessarily artificial intelligence, but but it's about technology sure. and about technology replacing you know, the fuzz buster or, or other things that we used to use. And so in some ways it's good, but you have to just, I think you have to try it out. I think you right. have to test it. So I wish that um, this guy with the bot with respect to traffic tickets, because those are pretty benign. Um, right. What's going to happen? You what's going to happen? Fine. Right. Right. You pay a fine, yeah. you know? And so if you didn't like the AI advice, you know, then, then you end up paying the fine and there's not a whole lot of repercussion for that. I think it's a great way to test it out, to be honest. I wish they would have continued because, like you said, it is only a matter of time before someone else right. comes forward with it. I think people are – and people don't realize this. Law, the practice of law is 
is the one of the slowest professions to keep up with the changing times. Um, you know, it's it it's always amazing to me how much of um, when you're looking for a statute or something or a case citation or anything, really, how much of it is still on paper and how um, everything else is it's as slow. digital as can be. And it's then true. you still have to go through these dusty leather bound books in order to find the citation you want. So it's a great point. Uh, talk with Dana Michelle. You can check out her website, Dana being Dana dot com. Dana, if people haven't seen your show, uh, what do you do on your show? What's your show all about? My show is about the human connections. It's about different things that bring people together. Uh, and, um, you know, we I, I believe that when you get people talking, just like you do on your show, you find out you have more things in common than you do different. Uh, people of different colors, different sexual orientations, religions, backgrounds. Uh, we all go through a lot of the same things. The episode that uh, I had recently was about uh, death and remembering loved ones during the holidays. I've got a lot of friends who are widows, and they come, and they're widows at a very young age, and they're they're coming from all different walks of life, different colors, different creeds, different races. Uh, grieving, grieving a spouse, I think, can be one of the most profound losses there are, especially when it's young. I'm talking about people who are losing spouses in their 40s, mm. in their 30s. Um, the current episode is about love and dating and relationships because I'm very, very passionate about that. I, um, I'm dating now, and it's it's a great thing, and I think that's very important. And so, but we all share some of those common bonds. I think when it's coming to um, finding love, getting out there, especially in this digital world, technology world, uh, and post pandemic, I think a lot of people have experienced losses, whether it be losing a spouse, a divorce, other kinds of breakups during this pandemic, and I think people are out there trying to find love, and I don't think that's limited to a particular type of person, uh, and that's what we talked about. It's so great that you do that, and again, people should check that out, uh, DanaBeingDana.com. The, one of the things that frustrates me about the era that we live and about a lot of the people that I interact with that listen to this show is they view people of different political persuasions almost n- not as even if they're uh, as if they're aliens, but as if they're enemies, right? Absolutely. And yet they have well, not. so much in common. You know, R- Ralph Nader, who's very progressive, he was on the show a while ago and he was talking about how he was delivering a speech or something about how children shouldn't be bombarded with all sorts of commercials for junk food during children's programming and how the people that uh, rushed to agree with him first were all these conservatives that probably aren't used to agreeing with him on anything. And I brought that up with him and he said, yeah, it's because, you know, we all bleed the same way, right? Fundamentally, we all often want the same things. We want our kids to be safe. We want to raise them in a safe environment. We want good health care. Uh, we want to be in in a safe place. We, we a lot of times we want the same things, but we're we're trained in this in this life that we're in right now, the society that we're in, to be so divided. And I think it's problematic, to be honest. Oh, no doubt about it. So one of the things that I try to do in my own life is you know surround myself with a, a very diverse group of uh, of people in every respect uh you know religion race age uh, you know political persuasion sexuality whatever 
it does become difficult at times. You find yourself getting caught in a bubble, right? And you find yourself uh, needing to kind of push yourself to uh, find entities that are going to challenge that bubble. What advice would you give to people in their own life that realize intellectually, they realize intellectually that it's, it's good for me to hear different points of view, different perspectives, and get outside of the bubble that I'm exposed to. But how do I begin? What do you tell people? Diversify your portfolio. You know, it's you've got to be intentional about making connections. And in this digital world, that's the benefit of technology, right? Mm-hmm. There's pros and cons. When you're on things like LinkedIn, right, or or different social media, you can connect with different people um, who are unlike you and, and be very intentional about it, you know, from, from the comforts of your home. It's it's easy to make connections. You have to you just have to be intentional about it. And a lot of times People, I think people are are fearful, so they're afraid of of making those connections, or they're afraid of of what it may do. Right? It may change your opinion. I think it's very rare for people like you and I who have very diverse people in our networks um, to be hateful, because when you have that exposure, right? When you've lived and you've you've experienced life not in your bubble, right? Not just where you came from, not just in your religious affiliation. Um, not just in your race, but really having an appreciation and finding connections with people who are unlike you. It makes it really hard to be a hateful person. Yeah, no, well said. Uh, Dana, it's always a treat to talk with you. Looking forward to your next trip out here. People, I hope, check out your website, and I hope they check out the Homecoming Challenge on uh, Facebook and Instagram. Uh, What else do you have planned while you're in town? Well, I'm leaving tomorrow. I have um, visited a, a bunch of different places. I've done some networking. I mean, this trip was meant to be fun and it's turned in which it has been but it's turned into a little bit more of um networking gotcha um and seeing some of the sites in new york well uh, i'm glad to have you uh, in studio i look forward to your next visit i want to give a quick shout out to stacy yeah i was uh, i just emailed her asking what her website was i uh, got that it we're supposed I've to got promote. It. okay good um her website is and stacy's a mutual friend of both of ours who she introduced is, us and she connected us um and that's what she's all about. She's Absolutely. about connecting people. Um, her business is called Elevated Connections Agency, and it's a boutique business aspiring to help businesses achieve their marketing goals through connecting them to other businesses that can fulfill their needs. She's got a networking mixer coming up. Um, it'll be in March, which will be awesome. And it's virtual. People it can is go virtual. wherever you can, they are. You can network in the metaverse, which is you know a great way. This is where AI is awesome because it can really help and, and make great connections ElevatedConnectionsAgency.com. dot com. Dana, we'll see you soon. Uh, I uh, have a whole bunch of Dana songs that I'm going to get to you. I want my soundtrack. Yeah, you could listen. Let's go. This is what I came here for. <laughs> I'm unemployed, but I've got my own soundtrack. This is what I came here for. This you, is awesome. You could listen to the classic Master P hit, Dana. You can bang her, which I'm sure wow, is the song that you've been. It's uh, certainly not named for. after me. Thank, thank you, Anna, <laughs> uh, for uh, submitting that, or the big star hit, Oh Dana. Which which might be more uh, more. That, that would be great. Oh, right. boy. Uh, this is The Other Side of Midnight. If you want to comment, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is Exodus by Bob Marley. This is another James Toto birthday selection. Happy birthday the day after, James Toto. He survived, so I clearly at least one of his wishes came true. Uh, we have suspended, if you missed last week's program, we have suspended our weekly tradition of uh, getting pizza because uh, Kenneth can't have dairy and um, you know Matt Blaze and I are both watching our figure. And lo and behold, it became just basically an opportunity for Alex Barnard to hoard pizza and uh, bring home three days worth of meals because he was the only one eating the pizza. So uh, I had offered yet last week to purchase a meal of our staff's choosing for them. And uh, Matt Play says he didn't get the message because he's not on WhatsApp. Turns out he was on WhatsApp, but now he's no longer on it. By the way, I don't understand why you don't have WhatsApp if you don't have an iPhone. The only reason I can understand to not have WhatsApp is if if you don't have an iPhone. If you ha- if you have an iPhone, you could still text. No, it's not the same. It's you can't do all the things you could do with WhatsApp. I, I so, I'm so a big, I should go back to WatsApp. Yes, absolutely. And join up. That's right. right. Uh, but because there was no pizza, I was hungry today. So I took whoever's yogurt parfait was in the in the refrigerator, unlabeled. And as this code that we live by, if it's not labeled, it's up for grabs. So if that was somebody's, sorry. Till next hour, your influence counts. Make sure you use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. TGIF, it is Friday, thank goodness. Hopefully you you have something fun planned this weekend. I've got a busy weekend, uh, but uh, all good things, all good things, right? Uh, hopefully it's the same for you. I know if, uh, if you don't have uh, a busy weekend, maybe you'll at least get a restful weekend and get an opportunity to just chill out a little bit, maybe get some sleep. Well, we'll do what we can to help you start your weekend on the right foot with... The Other Side of Midnight presents Denunciation. The following people, places, and things are things that I have deemed worthy of being denounced. And I must denounce the nation of Somalia. Somalia sits at the bottom of the 2022 Corruption Perceptions Index by Berlin-based corruption watchdog Transparency International. And they surveyed... 180 countries, and of the 180 countries they surveyed, they found Somalia overall, uh, across the board, is the absolute most corrupt country in the entire world. So there you have it. We could get into specific reasons as to why, but it is a country that appears to be totally dysfunctional. There's a lack of any form of regulatory mechanisms to address anything. So it's basically a country run by gangsters. There you have it. Somalia, I do denounce you. I must also denounce Arlisha Boykins. 
Alicia Boykins is a Virginia high school basketball coach who impersonated a 13-year-old player during a game last month. What is up with these adults impersonating teenagers? So uh, when a player on the Churchland High Junior Varsity girls team reportedly missed a January 21st game while away at a club tournament, assistant coach Arlisha Boykins came off the bench to play in the late season contest. Uh, they have video of this and everything. I don't know what this coach thought she was getting away with here, but two of the coaches, including Ms. Boykins, have been fired. Arlisha Boykins... I do denounce you, and I will denounce anyone that impersonates a 13-year-old girl, unless you're uh, Chris Hansen on Dateline. I must also denounce Mason Stonehouse. Uh, He is a six-year-old boy who went crazy. He went on a Grubhub spending spree and ordered $1,000 worth of takeout, of uh, delivery, on his father's Grubhub account. He went on a spending spree like he was on a game show, all charged to his father's uh, Grubhub. And um, this poor father, Keith Stonehouse, in Detroit, was home with his wife and his son. Uh, well, excuse me, the wife was away um, with uh, at the movies. And he's home, alone with his son. And all of a sudden, five large orders of jumbo shrimp come. Then the salads. Then the shawarma. Then the chicken pita sandwiches, then the chili cheese fries, then the ice cream, then the grape leaves, then the rice. And that's just some of what was delivered. Stonehouse um, says he's not laughing. He says this was something out of a Saturday Night Live skit. This was a nine and a half out of ten anger while it was happening. The next day, he said he was at an eight, and now, a week or so later, he's out at about a three. He says he still doesn't find it funny. But he can laugh with people a little bit. So the father, Keith Stonehouse, says he let Mason use his cell phone to play a game for about a half hour before bed. He never thought that the son would instead click on the Grubhub app and order large amounts of food. So, um, look, I know he's only six, but I was mature enough at six not to order $1,000 worth of delivery. So Mason Stonehouse... I do denounce you. And if you were my son, normally I would send you to bed without dinner. But what are you going to do with $1,000 worth of food? should send him to bed after eating five dinners. I must also denounce uh, Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan District Attorney. And I know that's a fashionable thing to do in the world of talk radio. But really, this office ought to be ashamed of themselves. This office, because of pure incompetence, is letting a... A disgraced New York City police department detective walk away a free man when he should be behind bars. So in the Bronx, 349 convictions were tossed. More than 100 in Manhattan. In Brooklyn, over 90 were overturned. And it all has to do with this one police officer, Joseph Franco, a detective. And he was charged with perjury and all sorts of other crimes related to his decades as a narcotics detective. And unfortunately, prosecutors lined up to dismiss the case. So um, this is crazy.
the judge in his case found that prosecutors with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office had failed to turn over evidence to the detective's lawyers on three occasions. That's a major ethical violation. They call that a Brady violation. And they dismissed the charges. So Judge Mandelbaum told the jurors, have you, as you have heard to date, there have been two different occasions that you have heard about where the prosecution fails to disclose certain evidence. It now turns out the prosecution failed to disclose additional evidence only learned about today. So the, the prosecutor involved in this case was immediately removed. Um, but this is crazy. This trial was supposed to shine a spotlight on police misconduct at a time when the whole country is ready to shine a spotlight on, mis- on police misconduct. This officer was as guilty as can be, as guilty as can be. And had the Manhattan DA's office simply not been incompetent, this guy would be going to prison. But he's going free because of the pandemic incompetence within the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Alvin Bragg, I do denounce you. Unlike so many of the men Detective Joseph Franco put behind bars, Joseph Franco will be free. I want to denounce sleeping pills. Uh, New evidence. I'm so frightened by this. New evidence shows that um, sleeping pills may actually raise the risk of dementia, especially among white people. And I happen to be a white person. Seniors who frequently take sleeping medications might be raising their risk for developing Alzheimer's disease, according to a new study. Sleep medications are one of the most commonly used medications in older adults. And researchers found that older white adults who said they often or almost always took sleep aids had a 79% higher chance of developing dementia compared to those who never or rarely use them. Now, that's significant. That is really significant. The connection was only seen among white people, not black participants. Isn't that interesting? In addition, further studies are needed to to confirm whether sleep medications themselves are harmful for cognition in older adults or if frequent use of sleep medications is an indicator of something else that might link to increased dementia. This is a very reputable study. It's done by the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the University of California San Francisco, this is, uh, and I know we want to be careful because we want to see if this is a correlation or a causation thing, but until there's evidence that uh, sleep aids don't cause dementia, I'm not taking them. I am not, I will stay awake all night as long as I can remember who Matt Blaze is. Well, maybe that's one thing I wouldn't mind forgetting. I sleep, sleeping pills, I do denounce you. I must also denounce junk food. More evidence coming out. I mean, do you really? I, I really regret eating the peanut M&Ms that I just ate. Do you really count peanut M&Ms as junk food? I guess you do. But eating junk food, every bite of it, increases the risk of dying from cancer. So scientists often call these ultra-processed foods. And I know somebody always emails me and says there's no such thing as ultra-processed foods. Well, we're talking about sugary drinks. We're talking about sliced bread, which it turns out, in spite of what they've been saying for the last hundred years, is not such a great thing. We're talking about ready-made meals. 
This new study warns that these foods are generally high in salt, fat, sugar, and contain artificial additives that can also lead to obesity, type 2 diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. They're cheaper and more convenient to buy and heavily marketed in comparison to other healthier options. So junk food, I do denounce you. I wish I had the name of this person to denounce, but I don't know that we know who it is. Have you seen this image all over the news, on TV, in the newspapers, on social media, of this pigeon that was dyed pink? So there, we don't know exactly what happened here, but the speculation in the animal rights movement is that this is the result of a gender reveal party where a pigeon was actually dyed pink. I hate gender reveal parties. I would never do this to someone. I would never have a gender reveal party. I hope I'm never invited to a gender reveal party. I think these are idiotic. I think they're uh, dangerous. I think they're annoying. I think they're inconvenient. But this, once you're actually dying animals, this is out of control. I hope they find whoever's pigeon this is. I hope they do a full-scale investigation and prosecute them to the fullest extent of the law. If you threw a gender reveal party and died a pigeon in the process, I do denounce you. I must also denounce the staff of a 7-Eleven in Malaysia. I didn't even know Malaysia had 7-Eleven. But I shouldn't be surprised, right? They're everywhere. For years, when I was growing up in Manhattan... They didn't have them. They brought them back, I think, about 10 years ago in Manhattan. Now they're all over the place. But um, there was a tweet posted on um, January 22nd that featured four photos of a 7-Eleven employee using a floor mop to clean a microwave oven. The tweet accumulated 2.2 million views. Um, The employee working at the outlet in Kuala Lumpur has since been suspended. Uh, This is just idiotic. A microwave oven where food goes? And you know how much of the food they serve at 7-Eleven is prepared in a microwave. They're putting a mop, which is filthy and goes on the floor, in the microwave oven where food goes? Well, Malaysian 7-Eleven, I do denounce you. And very seriously, I must denounce this... Suicide bomber in Pakistan. Uh, The Pakistani police are investigating how this bomber reached a mosque inside a highly fortified compound and killed over 100 people. They say the attacker may have had internal assistance. This is the deadliest incident in um, Pakistan in a decade. This is pure Islamic terrorism through and through. It's just horrific. The bomber struck as hundreds of worshippers gathered for noon prayers in a mosque that was was built for that purpose for the police and their families. This is not just a terrorist. I mean, it's a terrorist that was targeting people praying and police. I mean, you talk about someone that is just going straight to hell. My goodness. Uh, so suicide bomber in Pakistan, I do denounce you. And finally, whenever I am short on people to denounce... You just have to put three letters at the end of your list. And chances are this group has done something worthy of denunciation. That's right. I must denounce the MTA. And I realize we have listeners all over the country. uh, Nevada, Baltimore, Alaska, Tennessee. I get it. 
But I really must announce these people. The MTA is just ridiculous. So they have this um, this big uh, display at Grand Central Madison Terminal. And they have a big, beautiful etching. This is an $11 billion terminal that opened just last week. And they have a quote carved into a stone wall with the last name of one of the most famous artists in American history spelled incorrectly. Georgia O'Keeffe is spelled incorrectly. The etching forgot one of the F's in Georgia O'Keeffe's name. Now, the MTA says they're aware of the mistake, and they are trying to get an extra F in there. The MTA communications director, Tim Minton, said, we clearly effed this one up, and it's being fixed. The agency has taken responsibility for the error and said it will be addressing it, but it didn't say when the correction would be made. Call me crazy. Isn't that a pretty big error? You're going to etch someone's name in stone? Don't you think you ought to at least check what the correct spelling is? How does that happen? MTA, as I've done so often before, I do denounce you. Thoughts, questions, comments, calls, 800-848-9222. If there's somebody I denounce that you take issue with, if you have a question, whatever the case may be, you may call in and we have six open lines. one 800 848 9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. He's your uncle, not your dad. He's the best friend you ever had. So come on, dig, dig, dig in until it hurts. Just remember Pearl Harbor, the Alamo, and nothing could be worse. He's your favorite relative, and he needs a lot to live. So just bring, bring, bring everything until you bleed. And you send back what he don't need. If you're naughty... 1040 is your salvation by deprivation of temptation. Stocks and bonds I hear are not deductible. Oh, say, can you see if there's The great Elvis Presley singing He's Your Uncle, Not Your Dad, a song of all things about paying taxes. Why are we playing this? Because it was on this day. February 3rd, that uh, the 16th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was ratified. That's right. On this day, uh, February 3rd, the 16th Amendment was ratified. And uh, look, we've been paying that income tax ever since, right? There's now a a movement. You know, I don't want to talk about it now because it, it requires a little explanation But there's a movement now to get a vote in Congress for a fair tax, which would do away with the income tax. And that was February 3rd, 1913. So it was 110 years ago today. But the fair tax would do away with the with the income tax 
and it would replace it with a uh, national sales tax. And there was a time when I found that idea very appealing, uh, but I've done a lot of research on that, and uh, I think it's a loser. I don't think it's a good idea at all. Uh, I would love some way to tax consumption, but the fair tax, I've looked at it, and it uh, doesn't work. And look, it doesn't have any chance of passing even the House. Even There's not enough Republicans to even pass it. But uh, it is going to be voted on. I think this is going to be the first time that it's voted on for the full House since it was initially proposed uh, 24 years ago. So it's going to be interesting. I'd love to do a um, a fair tax debate, but uh, it's um, you know it's a, it's it's kind of a wonky issue, but it it is an interesting one because there's a a lot of problems with the tax code and the kind of the uh, the the interesting thing or the the easy thing to do, I should say, is say, oh, I'm not for the fair tax. And you could accept that as a an acceptance of the status quo of the tax system. But the current tax system is a mess. I actually prefer – there's something called the competitive tax plan, which um, would – I, I, I don't want to get into the weeds. But I was talking with the, the, the person that designed this who's a tax law professor at Columbia, Michael Grates. And I'm of the opinion that that would be the best vehicle for the country. I'll tell you, you know who had a great tax plan? When he ran for president, and I've been critical of him for other reasons, but someone who um, had a very interesting tax plan was Ted Cruz. And I think had he spent more time talking about that the way Steve Forbes did when he ran for president with the flat tax, I th- or uh, Herman Cain did when he ran for president with the 999 plan, I really think if uh, Cruz spent more time talking about his very unique tax plan, he might have gotten a little bit more traction. But you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda, right? But look into that, the competitive tax plan. I'm going to do a whole segment on that soon. Maybe when, when, whenever we know whether this fair tax is coming to a vote, that week we'll do a whole tax hour because there's a lot of interesting things on it. All right. 800-848-9222. Um, talking about anything and everything. Let me say hello to Chris in Yonkers. Hello, Chris. Yes, hi. Hi. Uh, about that Georgia O'Keefe Thing, is it a train station or train station? Grand Central. Oh, uh, Grand Central has another one. The stars over the main building, over the information uh, booth. You know how if you look up on that great ceiling, it's an arch, mm-hmm. and there's all these black star, white, white and black stars. Uh, well, yeah, you know in, this? inside the terminal itself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, those stars are painted backwards. I, I'm not sure I follow. Because, what do you mean they're painted backwards? Okay, if you were to look at the stars, east would be west and north would be south. And the the um, constellations pointed the wrong way. They're all oh, done backwards. Oh, sure enough, I did look and this the, up. You're right. And this cuts. And the the reason it was done that way was a mistake. Uh, and the, the explanation was it, it looked like they used a yellow dome, a, a transparent dome, where the lights had been posted to shine a light to the yellow dome and point where the stars were. Because what the excuse was, was this would look like the solar system uh, as seen from the outside. But that's a false. That's false. There is no place in the world 
where you could just see the stars backwards like well, that. And you, hey, it's a great point, Chris. I did not know that, and you're right. But I still think, I mean, look, the, the stars and having the constellation of Orion being reversed is, is a big deal. Okay, it's been that way for 100 years. This is a brand new stone engraving. This is a person's name, relatively famous person. I mean, I, I don't. I still don't think that the fact that the MTA has made similar mistakes before is an indication that this somehow lets them off the hook. I stand by my denunciation of the MTA. All right, eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. You know, um, one of the things there used to be a fellow on the radio. He was on the radio in New York and in L.A. But uh, he was on WABC in New York. He was on WNBC back in the day. He was on WNBC as E.J. Crummy. When he was on WABC, he would go by the name Joe Crummy. And I thought the show was okay. It was fine. But he would do something. I don't know if he did it every day. I think he did. But he did something that I thought was pretty clever. He would call it stuff we didn't get to and stuff we did. And I thought that was fun. So I've had this list all week long of stuff that I have been meaning to talk about. That I have not had an opportunity. But some of it is stuff we sort of talked about. So we're bringing, I don't know if we'll make this a regular feature, but certainly a one-time only. Stuff we didn't get to and stuff we did aspect of the program. Carl Reiner, who we were talking about the other day, he commented on the subject of living a long time, on longevity. And this dovetails very well with a subject that we did. I don't remember if it was Monday or Friday because I took a melatonin the other day, and this could be early onset dementia. But um, we were talking about living a long time and some of the keys to living a long time. Carl Reiner lived to be, you know, about 90. So he knows a thing or two about living a long time. When I interviewed Carl four or five years ago, what year is it now? It's 2023. Yeah, four or five years ago. I talked to him about living a long time. This is what he said the secret was for him. He's your uncle. No, that's Elvis. What is the secret of your longevity? Well, the major thing, the major thing is that I never, ever touch fried food. (laughs) I I don't eat it. I wouldn't look at it, and I don't touch it. And and the... uh, Never run for a bus. They'll always be others. Even if, even if you're late from work, you know, I never run for a bus. Let me uh, jump in here. Uh, clearly, that is not my interview with Carl Reiner. That's Carl Reiner's interview with the 2,000-year-old uh, man. So uh, I stand... Uh, I stand. Uh, I stand corrected. That is not uh, not Carl Reiner uh, talking to me. But uh, here's another thing that I did want to talk about. Bill, you know, so I'm in a uh, I'm in the process of doing a Shatnerian history historiography right now, where I am analyzing every interview that William Shatner has ever done that I can get my hands on. And so I end up watching the other day Bill uh, Shatner's interview with Bill Maher. On this podcast that Bill Maher does called Club Random. Great interview. Hour terrific. So uh, because it's on the YouTube, it brings me up a bunch. And I like Bill Maher. I like his show. I think he's I think he's clever. He's a little a little too um, snarky at times for me. But I find him to be relatively independent. I find him to be relatively entertaining and relatively 
intelligent, right? So when you have all three of those things, I become a fan, right? Even though he's, um, you know, I, I guess you'd call him uh, left wing, he has no problem calling out people on his own side of the aisle as well, which I like. So I end up watching this interview with Brian Cranston, who I also really like. I think he's a great actor. I thought he was terrific in Breaking Bad. I thought he was great on Seinfeld. I thought he was great in Mal- on Malcolm in the Middle. He's great in everything. And um, they end up having a great discussion, a very good interview. And one of the subjects they end up talking about is uh, critical race theory. And I had this on my list the other day of things to talk about. Here's Bill Maher talking about talking to Brian Cranston about critical race theory. How do you govern you, If you're How telling you... five-year-olds that you're either an oppressor or someone who uh, was uh, oppressed, you're, you're introducing ideas about race that are inappropriate for, for kids that age who can't understand okay, it. Okay, so common sense would Common sense that. is what's lacking in yeah. this country. You need to... That's why... But that is why people wind up passing laws about that. And yes, you're right. Very often the laws go too far. But it's not coming out... It's not coming from nothing. It's coming from things that have started in colleges mm. and very far-left woke thinking that... Uh, many people feel is not appropriate in schools. I mean, the same thing with with gender stuff. You know, can they just be kids for a minute? Bef- right. Okay. And 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 that's absolutely. And we have to find that time, that level of maturity when a when a child can understand that at certain times in this country's history, there was a grave mistreatment of other human beings. I think we get that. Well, no, we don't get it. What oh, do we get? Really? It? You think that is not something that is now widely understood and agreed? Yeah, it's definitely not widely understood. Oh, come on. I completely agree with Bill Maher there. And while I, I'm a big fan of Brian Cranston as an actor, and I like him, and he's an interesting guy, I think he is way off base on this one. Uh, if you listen to Bill Maher there, he's 100% right. Once you learn about slavery and what slavery was, you know that people were oppressed. There's no need to start kind of, um, you know, uh, training children at four, five, six, seven years old that, um, you know, white people are the devil. I thought Bill Maher uh, and I'll be honest, I find myself agreeing with Bill Maher the majority of the time these days. I think he was right on the money there. Uh, but it was a really good interview. If you want to hear a good discussion, especially on the weekend when this program's not available, let's say you're all caught up on the podcast and you find yourself up late at night and there's nothing good to listen to, you can check out that uh, interview. They call it Club Random. So if you just check out uh, Club Random with Bill Maher and Brian Cranston, you can see that interview. It was really interesting. Last thing I will mention, really interesting edition of the Cats at Night show the other day with Anthony Weiner commenting on this FBI agent. And uh, I'm going to do a follow-up on this maybe on Monday, but it had to do with this uh, FBI agent that was essentially caught being being bought off by a Russian oligarch. And a guy that had some very strong feelings about this was uh, Anthony Weiner. And I'm going to play you exactly what Anthony Weiner said. This was on Wednesday evening. 
And uh, I'm going to get a response from this from Paul Manafort, whose name Wiener invokes here. And we're going to do a whole series of interviews dealing with what's wrong with the intelligence community. That interview that we did with James Bamford the other day, we're just, this is the tip of the iceberg. Because if there's one thing that I'd like to do, it's shine a light on the intelligence community and all the things that are wrong with it. But I'm going to play um, the FBI supervisory agent, Charles McGonigal. He ran the counterintelligence unit at the New York field office, and he investigated Russian oligarchs. And look, he's entitled to the presumption of innocence, but it looks like he was being paid by a Russian billionaire. He was bought off by a Russian oligarch. So, um, and and I want to add to the anti-Russia hysteria, but this is a pretty big deal. So uh, this was Anthony Weiner talking about this on uh, Wednesday evening. So here's the background. In 2016, we had arguably the greatest of all October surprises, Hillary Clinton leading by about six points. And then suddenly they release information that came from my laptop of all places that the FBI had had for the better part of a month, but they waited for a while to release it. All kinds of leaks coming out of the FBI, even people in this building who, who are on the air for ABC had access to information. The FBI turned out that in, in the New York Bureau was doing a lot of leaking to hurt Hillary Clinton. That's been known for a while. The inspector general pointed that out. The Mueller report pointed it out. It's really not much dis- dispute. But last week, some big news happened about where that source of that leak might have been when there was an arrest. And it was an, an FBI agent, but not just any FBI agent. It was a guy named Charge McGonigal, who was the special agent in charge of counterintelligence, the guy in New York who was, su- who was supposed to be in charge of protecting us from Russian disinformation. It turns out, according to the indictment, was being paid by this guy, Oleg Deripaska. Now, that guy, if you might remember his name, that's the guy that Manafort was involved in that wound up sending Manafort to jail. So it's the same guy. It's the exact same guy. And so now, now the New York Times is under a lot of pressure because they were getting sources. They were quoting uh, FBI sources throughout the entire campaign, raising questions about Hillary and, frankly, being – Kind of gentle with Trump. Now, remember, at that time, no one thought Trump was going to win, so there wasn't as much of a bright light on him. But now it turns out that not just any old FBI agent, but someone who is at the very, very top, was he faces 75 years in jail right now. You mean they don't shoot people anymore? They don't. Well, I don't listen, the guy's in, the guy's in right to have. I mean, he has a, a right to have the, his case heard. It seems like they got a pretty, a pretty deep indictment against him. The thing that is troubling about this is the big mystery that had been going on for a long time. Is you know I have a personal dog in this hunt. This my laptop gets blamed for a lot. The FBI had my laptop for a month before it came out, and within two days after they released and said that okay we've got this information, they said oh there's actually nothing on here, and quietly Comey withdrew it. But by then the damage was done to Hillary Clinton. Yeah, Hillary now, Clinton was up by six points the day of the announcement. Had finally reached fifty percent favorable the day of the announcement. Steadily thereafter, and we all know what happens. So I thought that was really interesting, and. Um... I think Paul Manafort would sing a little bit of a different tune about his relationship with this particular Russian oligarch. But it is interesting to wonder if uh, this particular FBI agent was on the payroll of this Russian oligarch all the way back to 2016 and what role that played in what he was leaking to the media. Because, look, Anthony Weiner is right. There was nothing on that laptop, but that did play a role. Look, I don't think the result would have been different. But I think it's really because of James Comey's handling of that situation that uh, that there was a politically deleterious effect on Hillary Clinton. But 
uh, that did play a role in how some people voted. So um, I just wanted to kind of make sure you heard that because I thought it was an interesting observation for some from someone that was a um, you know he did have a ringside seat for a lot of that uh, a lot of those shenanigans back in 2016. All right. Anything you want to comment on, be my guest. 1-800-848-9222. Let me begin with Mary Beth on Long Island. Hello, Mary Beth. Hey, how are you, Frank? Great, thanks. Um, I loved Michelle. Um, I'm sorry, Dana Michelle. And I think before she leaves New York, and I guess she might be leaving early today, so maybe it's too late, but she has to meet John Katzmatidis because... I think she would be a great addition to WABC. I uh, I agree with you. I, look, John's listening right now, so I'm sure he heard your suggestion, and uh, I'm sure he heard Dana's interview. But I will uh, I will uh, definitely reiterate that via email. I think that's a great idea. She is so articulate, but so engaging, and that's what radio personalities need to be. You know that. Your listeners know that. She's phenomenal, and a friend of mine texted me during the interview and said, who is this woman? She's great. Well, this is an exciting woman. And she's, I think she could talk about anything. I agree. I I completely agree with you, uh, Mary Beth. Uh, Thank you very much for the vote of confidence. I'm going to, if she's not listening now, I'm going to share that uh, with her as well. But uh, I agree with you completely. Thank you, Mary Beth. I would love to see her do a, a show. And to my point in the first hour, there could be more. Uh, women on the radio, and I think Dana is certainly uh, certainly one. Gerard is in New Jersey. Hello, Gerard. Hello, Frank. Now, yeah. you said about TGIF before. Yes. Well, I come up with this. Thank God it's Frank. This guy is fantastic. This guy is fabulous. How do you like those? I like it, Gerard. I like it. You should market that. No, I'm not going to market it. I'll give it to you. I'll but, take it. Uh, the you. other thing that I didn't like when you said that you're going to have uh, Curtis become on the uh, Hall of Fame, he should become the Hall of Shame, the way he talks about you. And I think you you and him should go in the ring like Sid and Cuomo should go in the ring. And you'd be able to slap him silly. <laughs> and he couldn't cry for his lawyer. Well, thank you, Gerard. Uh, I got to tell you, um, you know, uh, Curtis is on in years now and, you know, he's been beat up pretty good and had a lot of health issues. Make no mistake. Curtis is one of the toughest people on the planet. And uh, I may not be super intelligent, but I am smart enough never to agree to get in a fight with Curtis. Curtis is... I would put my money on Curtis in a fight with anybody, uh, any age, any, you know, any any um, sp- uh, fighting specialty. Uh, Curtis is a tough guy. OK. And, um, you know, I think I might surprise some people if, uh, you know, if I were ever to mix it up with somebody. Not Curtis. Curtis is pretty tough. Uh, I mean that sincerely. I'm like a- the big dog. 800-848-9222. Tommy is in Brooklyn. Hello, Tommy. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. Um you know about the Curtis thing. Um, I would, I would challenge him now only because he's old and broken. I'm and, telling you, I'm, you would, guys don't on. know. He, he Hold is. On. Let me, let me finish. Mm-hmm. Let me finish. But I would bet against me, that's for sure, because I still, I've met him. I'm sure he kicked my pussy all over the place. Anyway, 
the MTA debacle, one of many over the many years, uh, but someone wasn't very mindful that day over hungover. There is a fix for it, though, and uh, any stone setter and engravers uh, can fix this mistake. It's concaving it, and, and there's a lot of different methods for fixing it. Um, so, but the only problem is we can't fix stupid, so we have to do something about that. And I have one more question for you, and uh, you are considered uh, one of the most prolific uh, interviewers, right? Everybody talks about how well you interview. Thank you. Thank have you. you. Ever, have you ever? I, I think you're a great interviewer too. Have you ever interviewed yourself? <laughs> and I would look forward to that. I would really look I, forward I, to I have you. actually, and um, well, after a fashion, right? If you um, uh, do, you email Tommy. Uh, soon. Um, I, I I kind of rebooted my phone. I have no idea right. what I did. If you go on, if you go on, um, this is from many years ago, right? This is from about uh, 21 years ago. But there was an incident. Uh, where I interviewed uh, two of my clones, right, and maybe even three, and it's on the YouTube. Uh, this is about 21 years ago, and if you go on the YouTube and you type in Murano Vision clones, uh, Murano Vision C L O N E S, you will see an interview that I conducted with uh, three of my clones. I'm not going to spoil it for you, and it's actually pretty cheesy. But if you go on YouTube and anybody that uh, after the show is over that wants to see that, just go on YouTube and type Murano Vision Clones and it comes uh, comes up. The real video worth watching on YouTube is Aunt Camille's Egg Salad. The uh, She offered her method for preparing egg salad, which is on there as well. Uh, let me say hello to Robert in Suffolk. Hello, Robert. Hi, Frank. Hi, Robert. Hey, have you ever seen Space 1999? A series with uh, Martin uh, Landau. It was, well, yeah, Martin Landau, Barbara Bain, uh, Moonbase Alpha. That was uh, where they were situated, a base on the permanent base on the moon. Yeah, I, the moon, I, I have seen it. Yes, I have seen it. At the end of the series. Yes, I, ha- I have seen it. It was not, I haven't seen every episode, but yes, I've seen several episodes. I liked it. I thought it was a good show. Yeah, me too, man. I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, I'm a fan of Martin Landau. And, you know, somebody I think earlier had asked about Leonard Nimoy. Thank you for the call, Robert. Martin Landau, who is my favorite Martin Landau picture. And, look, I love him in everything. He's just got a great look to him. He's great in rounders. He was one of those actors, almost like Jack Nicholson, where the older he got, I loved looking at him even more, right? It just, he really sort of grew into his face the older he got. Martin Landau, Jack Nicholson, Walter Matthau. They just looked better older. They, I, he's one of those guys. But um, uh, and, in terms of older Martin Landau, I love him in Rounders. I love the way his lips move. I love everything about him. I love him in Ed Wood. That's my favorite Martin Landau movie where he plays Bella Lugosi. He is phenomenal. Phenomenal as Bella Lugosi in uh, in Edward, which is a great picture. But uh, what I was going to say about Martin Landau is he was the original choice to play Mister Spock on Star Trek before Leonard Nimoy. Can you believe that? Imagine how different it would have been if it was Martin Landau being logical. Jim is in New Jersey. Hello, Jim. Hello, Frank. I'm Jim Bennett. I'm the secretary and member of the Board of Americans for Fair Taxation, and I heard your uh, uh, speech about the fair tax, and I'm in a moment of insomnia. I decided to pick up the phone and call. I would love to have a debate with you on the air 
about the merits of the fair tax. Oh, great. Well, so, um, you know, I'm, when our call terminates, I'm going to have uh, Kenneth uh, give you my contact information, and we'll have you back. We'll, rep- we'll have you represent the pro-fair tax side, but uh, I'm going to have someone much more knowledgeable than I am oppose the fair tax. Uh, but, uh, look, uh, so a lot of people uh, – I don't want to have it all now because I want to give the argument it's just due – uh, a lot of people, and if people don't know what the fair tax is, uh, basically it would do away with the income tax, do away with the payroll tax, and it would do away with the uh, with the capital gains tax, and replace everything with a thirty percent national sales tax. Uh, one of the things that gets brought up, and um, you know, we'll have a fuller discussion about this, and I'm glad you called in. One of the things that gets brought up, and I'm curious how you explain this to folks is how do you deal with tax evasion? I mean, we see in New York with an 8.5% sales tax how often people evade that sales tax just by paying cash. What are you Now, that's only with an 8.5% sales tax. If you're talking about a 30% sales tax, why wouldn't everybody, merchants and consumers, do all their transactions in cash and just evade it? There are several reasons, Frank. First of all, you're reducing your collections points from about $55 million to $20 million, so you have a lot more IRS agents who are available to police fewer collection points. Secondly, well, 80%— well, wait, 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 pause there. When you say $55 million to $20 million, what's $55 million, what's $20 million? Well, $55 million income tax filers, individuals and corporations, and uh, $20 million, you'd have more sales tax— receipts than you would have today because the sales tax is a broader-based tax. Uh, So that's uh, one of the reasons. And there are several others. First of all, 80% of the retail sales in the United States are through uh, big box stores and chains. And you're not going to be able to make a deal with the 17-year-old clerk at the cash register uh, Right. Uh, uh, Okay. let's say let's concede that. But if I go to a lot of other restaurants, still, they say it's this price for cash. It's this price if you do if you pay with something other than cash. How do you deal with that? Well, first of all, you're going to all the all the merchants who are uh, not only retailers, but wholesalers and intermediates are going to have to register as sellers. So. Uh, I, I used to work for the New Jersey Attorney General's office, and one of my big clients was the Division of Taxation. And those guys are very efficient at monitoring the sales that go into the retailers. So they know that if Joe's Garage is uh, uh, making a deal whereby you can uh, – Right, but that, uh, whereby, I mean, uh, Jim, you'd acknowledge kind of this goes on like crazy already, right? I mean, this is a big problem now, and that's just with an 8.5% tax. Well, if you look at the California Board of Equalization, uh, they've done a study about the California tax. Now, admittedly, that's a lower rate, but uh, they think that uh, evasion is about 5%. And if you take out the uh, the, uh, the out-of-state sales, uh, it's more like 2.5%. Now, the IRS acknowledges a 25% uh, noncompliance and evasion uh, rate right now. And if you uh, and if you look at the um, uh, and uh, it, we have another study showing that uh, noncompliance and uh, the IRS fails to collect about one trillion dollars uh, worth of uh, income tax that uh, should be paid, but somehow is not being paid. And if we were to collect the tax that should be paid, uh, we just about balance the budget. 
So uh, evasion is a huge problem with the income tax and uh, with sales taxes are much more efficient to collect. So uh, I think the evasion of uh, the the evasion issue that's thrown up as an argument really is a uh, red herring. Well, I, I completely disagree. Just because I see all the tax evasion that goes on with eight and a half percent, I think if you had something like a value added tax, where something is taxed on each stage of production and that tax is passed on, uh, then uh, then you know we could have a talk. Which is why I like the competitive tax plan more than the fair tax plan. And then the, the last thing I'll mention, and then um, give I'm going to put you on hold, and uh, Kenneth will give you my contact information. And we'll do this as the as it comes closer to a vote. And so and even Grover Norquist, who's uh, very anti-tax, Wall Street Journal, National Review, they're all opposed to uh, the fair tax on both economic and political grounds. But the last thing I'll mention is uh, the the models that have this 30 percent tax being revenue neutral. That in that would include all the purchases by the government, every piece of military equipment, every piece of highway equipment that the government by state, state, city and federal government. That's now subject to this 30 percent tax. Now, wouldn't that because even these local state and federal governments are spending so much more because of the sales tax, wouldn't that dramatically increase state, municipal and federal government spending? Well, let me tell you why they do that, and let me give you an example. Uh, let's let's say you have garbage collection at the municipal level, and uh, the city of Summit, which is where I live, has municipal garbage collection, and the city of Westfield, uh, which is about two towns away, has private garbage collection. Now, under the fair tax, you'd have to charge uh, pro- uh, fair tax for the private garbage collection, but not for municipal garbage collection. So guess what you would have? You would have a big flight to government services as opposed to private services, and there would be no privatization. So that's the reason why we charge governments. Uh, right. For, I, I mean, uh, and, and again, uh, and, and, uh, Jim, I'm sorry I'm out of time here, but I'm going to put you on hold. Get, get my contact information from Kenneth. But I think you proved exactly what I was saying, is that even if all the spending was the same, because every every piece of tar New York buys, every uh, every gun the New York City Police Department buys is now subject to a thirty percent sales tax on top of the existing price. Think of the increase in prices for everybody. I mean, it is uh, at a time when inflation is already a problem. This puts inflation on steroids. On steroids. But I don't pretend to be an uh, expert on this. And look, I used to be for this 23 years ago. But then when you look at the numbers, it just doesn't make sense. It it makes zero sense. Uh, The much better plan is the uh, competitive tax plan, which uh, was designed by uh, Michael Grates. So we'll we'll do a debate, though. I like this fellow. He's a nice guy. And I was going to have Neil Bortz do it, who was one of the guys that wrote the book on the fair tax. But he may not want to stay up this late. So we'll have Mr. Bennett do it. Uh, he certainly seems well-informed on it. All right, 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your call straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Just too good to be true. Can't take my eyes off you. You'd be like 
was a uh, birthday bumper music selection by Bridget Guzzi. We're still celebrating her birthday. You know, I ran into a friend of mine yesterday. Uh, I, I, had a, I had a meeting yesterday. Um, well, whatever. I'll spare you the details right now because we, we're running short on time. But I ran into a friend of mine, and he says, Hey, you got to meet me tomorrow uh, in Manhattan. And uh, we're going to have – I'm meeting a bunch of people, and, they're, you know, they're pretty interesting people, pretty influential people. We're, we're meeting for, um, for my birthday. We're having cocktails for my birthday. I said, what are you talking about? Your birthday was a month ago. And he says, yeah, well, I haven't seen these people. I said, no. You get a week. You get a week to celebrate your birthday. There's no celebrating a month later. Um, you can't be dining out on your birthday for a month. You can't do it. I was at your birthday party when it actually was. It's too, it's too much. Too much. But uh, for Bridget, we'll give her the week. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222. Coming up next hour, Debbie Schlossel will be here. Debbie Schlossel is an attorney. She's a conservative commentator. She's been a blogger. We mostly use her for movie reviews, but um, we always squeeze in a couple of political questions as well. And she always finds these sort of political subtexts to the movies as well. Also, uh, there's there's a balloon from China that is loose. We're keeping an eye on that. Wondering if anyone has seen this green comet that is supposedly in the sky. I haven't seen it, and I've been looking. If anyone has seen the comet, please uh, post a photo in our Facebook group. Just go to facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. It's a good group to join anyway if you're a fan of this show. It's a forum for interacting with other listeners. All right, until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Side of midnight. It's Friday. Impossible to be in a bad mood on a Friday. Uh, although, except maybe for us, because we're told we have to stick around here for a post-show meeting, which is supposedly going to be right after the show. Let's see. Let's see. It's going to be very interesting. You know, it's funny. <laughs> when I picture waiting for this post-show meeting, I just see like one of those old cartoons where I'm sitting there twiddling my thumbs, passing time for this post-show meeting to begin. And then the next frame is a dissolve to me just having this long beard, still waiting for this meeting that was supposed to take place after the show. But uh, fingers crossed. We'll see what happens. All right. A couple of things I want to get to. One. 
What should the role of Space Force be? The uh, caller called up earlier, I think it was Robert, or I don't remember who it was, asking about Space 1999. And this is is something that a lot of people don't talk about, but I really believe that when the entire history of the era in which we're living now is written, the – Either the greatest or the second greatest achievement of the Trump administration is going to be the establishment of the Space Force as a new branch of the military. And there's a very interesting article in um, a website called RealClearDefense.com. I'm going to link to it right now. Uh, and uh, you could see it on my, my Facebook page, Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. And it basically asks the question, it basically asks, should Space Force look at the moon or the Earth? And it's by James Holmes. And um, basically, it gets into the division about where the Space Force is headed in terms of its goals. There are a lot of influential voices in the military and in the world of space that maintain that the same should that um, space-borne enterprises should look towards space. You have one fella, his name is Frank Calvelli, and he is the top acquisition executive for the U.S. Space Force. And he addressed the National Security Space Association's Defense and Intelligence Conference, and his remarks had a seawater flair. Um, and he basically asked... So is it going to be Mahan or Man or Corbett in orbit? Sir Julian Corbett was an English sea power historian and theorist who insisted that uh, navies cast their gaze shoreward because that's where military contests are ultimately decided. So for him, ruling the sea was a necessary but insufficient condition for strategic and political successes. After all... Corbett noted people live on land. Land ought to be the focal point for Marshall Enterprises. Other people say the same should go for space. So this fellow, Frank Calvelli, enjoined the U.S. Space Force to devote itself to supporting earthbound operations. At issue is the fundamental question facing the Space Force. Um, Whether the Space Force will turn its attention and energies towards space as the region of space from the Earth out to and including the region around the surface of the moon in conjunction with NASA, or whether the Space Force will occupy itself mainly with rendering aid to military operations on Earth's surface. And James Holmes is right in this article that I posted, which you could read. The answer matters, and we don't have an answer for that yet. There's apparently a very big division in terms of scope. Early signs indicate that there's a big cultural rift dividing guardians against themselves that's what we call the people in the space force guardians you know people in the army are soldiers people in the navy are sailors people in the marines are marines people in the space force are guardians some of them appear intent on reorienting towards space while more traditional officers and officials including this fellow frank calvelli call on the u.s space force to put the accent on orbital joint operations carried out in concert with the Air Force, the Army, the Navy, and the Marines. So um, there's a lot of there's a lot of good 
points on both sides. But basically, you have one school of thought, which is option A, to focus the finite resources on defending us from what occurs above, or option B, to defend what is above from threats on the earth. Which way, I mean, look, obviously, unless you're a military expert, I don't know that our opinion matters too much, but you're a taxpayer, you're a voter. I am. What do you think? Which direction would you rather see the Space Force focus? Look outward or look inward? I am in the look outward category. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. See, both schools of thought inhabit what James Holmes describes as the same geospatial domain, meaning we're talking about the same area. Even so, the missions lead to divergent outlooks on air power. The implications of a cultural disjunction could be even more pronounced in the U.S. Space Force than in the Air Force. After all, strategic bombers, fighters, and attack aircraft all roam the same skies, albeit usually at different altitudes and across different geographic areas. They should share a common frame of reference to some degree, but as space enthusiasts note, Operating in Earth orbit means not just looking down towards the Earth, but confining one's attention to a relatively small volume of space. So um, I think it's a really interesting question, and I have to confess, I think about space a lot, and I've never thought of this. But my vote, I, I, I don't really have a good, inter- and a good answer for it, but my vote is that we should look outward, and that should be the um, focus of... Uh, the Space Force. But it's an, an interesting column by Dr. James Holmes, who is a uh, professor at the U.S. Naval War College and a real expert in this stuff. But um, what he finishes the column with is this. In the interest of self-knowledge, spacefarers could do worse than review the works of sea power theorists of old, break out those dusty copies of Corbett's some principles of maritime strategy and man's the influence of sea power upon history because evidently he believes the same debate that was facing navies 200 years ago is the one that the Space Force is now having within itself. All right, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on that. We're going to do the $1,000 Minute and then we're going to talk to Debbie Schlossel. But some sad news uh, for those of us that are fans of pro wrestling – Lanny Poffo, a popular pro wrestler whose career spanned from the 1970s to the 2010s, has passed away at the age of 68. If you were a fan of pro wrestling in the 80s, chances are you remember Lanny Poffo. Look, he had a lot of gimmicks throughout his life. Leaping Lanny Poffo, just plain old Lanny Poffo. Um, But chances are, if you were a fan of wrestling in the 80s, you remember him as the genius. Pay attention to me. I'm the genius. Jim Neidhart does not have a chance. He's ugly, repulsive, and somewhat obese. There isn't much room for romance. The genius, however, is handsome and tall. My body is so statuesque. The genius has read every one of these books. I invite you to sit at my desk, perusing the poems of Emily D., T.S. Eliot, and all the rest. I shall make the anvil write 100 times. The genius is truly the best. The genius is truly the best. And uh, look, he was quite a character and a bright guy. I don't know that he was, you know, uh, really a genius, but he really was very skilled with words. He also happened to be the father, excuse me, the son 
of a wrestler by the name of Angelo Poffo. That's who trained him. And his brother was better known as the Macho Man Randy Savage, one of the best-known, most popular pro wrestlers of all time. And it's interesting. I came across one interview that he did just before it was announced that he died. I think he did this interview a day before he died. And they were asking him about different wrestlers and this and that. And what he said was so... It was so eerie when you look at what actually occurred. Listen to this. He said, I didn't think he had much to be... I mean, Rene Dupree at least had something to be arrogant about. Bam Bam Bigelow does not have much to be arrogant about. And I hate to speak ill of the dead, but everybody's dead. So... I mean, if you just want to talk about the wrestlers that I know that are alive, um, we don't, you know, what are we going to do for the rest of the time? So uh, uh, that was recorded the day before he died. He said everybody's dead. Now, I, uh, I've i been in touch with Lanny Poffo a great deal over the last few years. We spoke um, We spoke pretty regularly via email, and I really liked him. He used to live in my hometown, and not when I, not when we were in touch. I don't think I ever met him, but we talked by phone a bit and uh, by email pretty regularly. And I was a fan, and he appreciated the fact that I was a fan of both him and his brother, Bruce Pritchard, who is one of the most knowledgeable people in the world when it comes to the pro wrestling business. Um, on his podcast, Something to Wrestle About, talked about Lanny Poffo, the kind of person he is, the kind of wrestler he was, and his impact on the wrestling business. Chat me up about the genius character. Well, you know, you talk about October 31st in Topeka, Kansas, and Vince had a bet that he said that even, you know, the genius would sell out and the genius did sell out against Hulk Hogan on this night in Topeka, Kansas. But the genius gimmick was something, you know, Lanny was the poet laureate of the WWF and he always wrote this great poetry. And sometimes I saw Lanny uh, last week in an appearance and he thanked me because when he did a brother love show, I had given him a call with almost five days notice to let him know he's doing the brother love show. And he could actually put thought into the poem he was going to write. Most of the time he would be given a couple, maybe an hour's notice and Hey, Lanny, come up with something. But the genius was uh, a Vince McMahon creation that he looked at Lanny and, and the way that Lanny delivered his poems was kind of holier than thou and smarter than everybody else and thought if he was a genius, he'd be a great uh, addition to Mr. Perfect. Um, and it was a good it was a good role and a good run for Lanny Poffo. I, th- I thought he pulled it off to perfection. He wrestled his last match uh, January of 2020 in a six-person tag match, and he hadn't wrestled in a while before that, for, um, you know, an an upstate New York independent promotion. And he would wrestle occasionally. And um, I was a fan. I was a fan of him, and uh, I was thrilled back in um, 2016, 2017, I don't remember which it was, to be able to interview Lanny. And we talked about, now keep in mind, his father was a famous pro wrestler. His brother was a famous pro wrestler. A lot of times when you choose a field that people that you're related to have had some uh, success in, it can be very tough. It leads to very heightened expectations, right? I mean, picture uh, George W. Bush trying to go into politics or John Gambling trying to go into radio. It could be very tough. But um, 
I talked to Lanny about why he chose wrestling as a profession. What made you decide to pursue that as a career? Clearly, you had a, an incredible gift of gab. Clearly, you're very bright and cr- clearly a great athlete. There must have been any number of professional opportunities available to you. Why did you choose wrestling? Like I say, my father was a wrestler, and I really had a dream to be a baseball player. So did my brother, and he was signed in 1971 by the St. Louis Cardinals organization. And, you know, it's just that... Um, even as great as Randy was, he wasn't great enough. You know, the major leagues mm-hmm. have very, very high standards. And they just, nobody loves anybody. They take a number two pencil and strike your name from the list, and your heart is broken. Well, Randy's last baseball game uh, was uh, 1975 uh, with the White Sox. He, you know, right before spring training, they let him go. And um, he started as a professional wrestler, and 10 years later, he debuts in Madison Square Garden, so I'd say he got the last laugh. And um, so he clearly was, his brother died about seven or eight years ago, and then they inducted his brother into the WWE Hall of Fame posthumously, and Lanny Poffo gave the speech on his brother's uh, on his brother's behalf. And uh, he was really a character, published a couple of books, one being a collection of poems, had some success as a manager later on. But I talked to him about what it was like constantly being compared to your brother and to your father. It's got to be tough because you're constantly being compared to your father and your brother. Is that difficult or does that make it easier for you as a professional wrestler? How did you find that? It depends how you look at it. I found it to be 100% positive in my direction. Um. As a matter of fact, my father opened many doors for me. So did my brother. And um, as you know, this isn't the 100-yard dash where the best man always wins. It's more subjective. Well, let's put it this way. It is subjective. Hmm. And um, being the brother of the macho man has only helped me. And I didn't mind being in his shadow because it was beautiful there. Isn't that nice? That's very, uh, very brotherly, very fraternal. I thought that was great. So I asked, what about, what are the keys to wrestling success? What percentage would you say of a wrestler's success is due to a TV persona uh, and being able to cut a promo and so forth? And what percentage is due to uh, having that degree of athleticism needed in the ring? It's an eclectic mix. You know, uh, Yogi Berra just passed away, and he said something to the effect of, Hitting was 90% mental and the other <laughs> half physical. You know, it's just no matter how you slice the pie chart, um, and just just to let you know, if um, if I had Vince McMahon's brains, I would throw mine away. So, um, and this is the last clip I'll play, and I know we have a lot of people that aren't into pro wrestling, and I, I appreciate your indulgence, but the last thing I'll mention, what you're about to hear I go back and listen to all the time. I've even played it on the radio before. Because one of the things that drives me crazy about talk radio, and look, I'm a guy that likes to hang around with veterans. I talk to a lot of old talk show hosts all the time that you don't hear routinely on the radio. But one of the things that drives me crazy is that um, I'm trying to make a living here, right, in pro wrestling. (laughs) If only. No, in, um, in talk radio, right? One of the things that kills me is when people who have made a lot of money in talk radio, 
and are not currently working in it, they basically um, they basically act like what we're doing is nonsense. I, I'm so done with all these old talk show hosts, talk show producers, talk show screeners, the guy that worked in the mailroom at a talk station 20 years ago, all saying, oh, yeah, there's nothing good on talk radio these days. Oh, yeah, radio's dead. Screw you. Those of us that are trying to make a living the same way that you did, don't don't get in the way of what we want to do. And, look, I have a lot of admiration and a lot of reverence, quite frankly, for Bruno Sammartino, especially being of Italian descent. He was kind of like a folk hero growing up. Um, but I found Lanny Poffo's criticism of Bruno Sammartino right on the money for the same reasons, and I found it very entertaining. So I'm playing it for both of those reasons. One, because I, I see so many parallels to these naysayers that are out of the world of talk radio that are um, that are uh, spitting on everything that we're doing. And I, it's just funny to hear him kind of mimic that Bruno Sammartino accent. Here was Lanny, Sam, uh, Lanny Poffo talking about uh, Bruno Sammartino. But he, even he was saying, I don't like what's happening today. <laughs> Okay, let me tell you something about what's happening today. Whether you like it or don't like it, it is what's happening today. Why don't you accept it? All you old, miserable people who can't stand the fact that you have passed the torch to the new generation, why don't you just wish them well and go home? Why do you have to trash the business every time somebody's stupid enough to put a camera lens in your face and roll the tape? Because what you are doing is trying to do something that can't be done. You're trying to not sell tickets. You're trying to urinate in the soup that everybody did drink from, and now other people would like that little taste, but you're trying, since you can't rule the business anymore, you're trying to ruin the business. I am for, and I believe, that I want to be happy and successful, but I can also, I, I don't feel any less worthwhile as an individual if other people are doing well too, why can't why can't why do I have to be like a lion that has a full belly that doesn't want anybody else to eat? That's really what they're saying. In my day, I got news for you, Bruno. In your day, I mean, it was all real when you did it, right? Is that why you wore a toupee in the ring? You know, with everybody instructions not to pull it. You know what I mean? Since it was such a shoot in your day, I mean. I, I love Bruno. I, I mean, he was an icon, but I use that word was with great vociferousness, you know. And isn't that great? He says, I'm Bruno Not anymore, you're not. You're just old Bruno. So, again, not not to degrade the legacy or the contributions of Bruno Sammartino, and he did make those remarks while Bruno was alive. Um, but I really, I really felt that he was speaking for me in terms of what I've been listening to a lot of these grizzled veterans of talk radio say. And I'm talking talent, management, production. I hear it every day, and I'm sick of it, quite frankly. And that's why I go back and listen to that Lanny Poffo clip frequently. Uh, so he's passed away at the age of 68. We don't really know the circumstances of what happened. And uh, unfortunately, 68 is way too young. Lanny Poffo um, pub- was very against um, drugs, very against alcohol, very against smoking. He was a very vocal opponent of tobacco smoking. He even published an anti-smoking book of limericks 
titled Limericks from the Heart and Lungs. And um, he was uh, he seemed to be really into physical fitness, seemed like he was in great shape. So I don't know what the situation was exactly um, what led that led to his death. But uh, I'm certainly going to miss him. And um, he was uh, whenever I dealt with him, clearly a little quirky. But uh, struck me as a very bright guy and a very smart guy and a, and a guy that really enjoyed being the Macho Man's brother, which is uh, which I certainly can appreciate. All right. Before we get to Debbie Schloss on the $1,000 Minute, I want to remind you, if you have not already done so, please listen to this week's episode of The Racket Report. The Racket Report is a separate podcast that I do with content that you cannot hear on this radio show. My guest this week is Rita Giganti. Rita Giganti is the daughter of Vincent Chin Giganti, the niece of Father Louis Giganti, the priest and politician. And Vinny Giganti was the head of the Genovese crime family. So I spoke to Rita, and if you want to listen to the whole thing, just go to iTunes and search um, Racket Report, the Racket Report, or go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com. But if you have iTunes or Google Podcasts or Spotify, whatever your favorite podcast app is, the best thing you could do is search the Racket Report and hit the subscribe button. But um, you, if you don't have any podcast platform, just go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com. And it's really a compelling interview. We spoke about her father. And I asked her when she learned that her father was in the mob. You alluded to the fact that you learned about who he was in terms of being a mobster when you were around 19. How did you come to learn that he was involved in organized actually, crime? Actually, I was 16. I was in high school. And, you know, I would hear a lot of things that kids would say. There were, there were, you know, there were kids that could hang out with me, and then there were kids that could not hang out with me, and I never understood why. Okay. There was this one girl that um, she was almost like taunting me. You know, she would call me the mafia princess and she would spread all these things in school. And, you know, I, in, in that moment, I had just had enough of it all. And I mean, of course, you know, I look back now and God knows I would, would not want to raise my hands again, but um, I pinned this girl in the bathroom and I just beat the out of her. And and I said that I'll never talk about my family again. But the ironic thing was, after I hit her, you know, my my friend was with me, and I remembered this clear as a bell. And she said, "Hurry up, somebody's coming!" Like one of the teachers. And I I remember hitting her for the last time, and I said, "I'm done with you." And I remember wow. the words at five years old, but I didn't know why. Like those words stuck with me, but I didn't know why because I did not remember that memory of five years old till I started writing my book. So it's really interesting interview. By the way, um, a whole bunch of people called us and reached out to me and said that when I played that clip of Lanny Poffo talking about Bruno Sammartino, that they couldn't hear it. Now, I don't understand why uh, I could hear it. You could hear it, right, Matt Plays? So I don't know if it was like a, one of those situations where it's a mono versus stereo thing. Uh, what was yeah, the story? it could there? be something like that because I, 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 we heard it, obviously. Yeah. We heard it, so um, I, I do not know. So what I have asked Kenneth to do is when he uploads the podcast of this program – 
to include that clip in there. So even if you did hear this show and you had to suffer through the minute and 47 seconds of silence that you did not get get to hear, it's much better if you could hear it. So go to the podcast, just search The Other Side of Midnight or uh, search uh, The Other Side of Midnight on any podcast app or go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com and you can listen to that portion of the show because it's worth hearing. It is worth hearing. And my comments really don't make any sense unless you heard it. I also am a little troubled that we only heard from about a dozen people. Where are the rest of the thousands of people that were listening? You're going to sit there and take that um, the uh, minute and 47 seconds? All right. Uh, seventh caller to 800-848-9222. We'll play the $1,000 minute. You'll get to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you can do it, you will win $1,000. Simple as that. 800-848-9222. If you're the seventh caller, you could play the game, hopefully win some money. Debbie Schlessel will tell us what's worth seeing straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. All right. Well, okay. Well, apparently the, the music is, uh, is in the same place as that uh, clip of Lanny Poffo. You know, it's interesting. Uh, we're, trying to, uh, we're playing detective about uh, why we couldn't hear that. I just heard from our friend Debbie Duhame who, uh, who said that uh, she couldn't hear it either. Thank you. But it, it did go out to the network. So what I would ask is if you are in Baltimore on WCBM or in your Nevada on the Nevada Talk Radio Network or you're in Tennessee or uh, you're in um, you know, Alaska, uh, let me know if you, if you heard that. Because uh, I'm curious, you know, it'll help us play detective. 800-848-9222. I have to think they didn't because why would they hear it, would not hear it in New York and on our stream in New York, but they would hear it elsewhere. But we'll we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. But it will be on the podcast. We're going to check it and double check it. All right. We're going to talk with Debbie Schlossel in just a minute and find out what movies are uh, worth seeing. It is time for The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Thank you, uh, Chris Libertini, and um, I appreciate that very much. Uh, All right, we're going to give somebody an opportunity to uh, win some money. Let us say hello to Ellie in Baltimore. Hello, Ellie. Oh, it must be my lucky day. I've never gotten through on this uh, contest. Wonderful. Well, let's let's hope that's the case. So you've heard the contest before, right? Yeah, I've uh, guessed at least five or six in the past. Wonderful. Okay, so you you should be in good shape then. If you're ready to go, we'll get started. Okay. I'll try my best. All right. Just don't get nervous. And if it's, it seems it seems like an obvious answer, it probably is. All right. During what type of weather event are you most likely to get wet? Rain. What's the date of Valentine's Day? February 14th. What do the initials AI commonly refer to? Artificial intelligence. What singer sang the hit songs Like a Virgin and Material Girl? Madonna. Who was Bob Dole's running mate in 1996? Oh, oh my God. Oh, shit. Let me think. Oh, oh, I can't. It's on the tip of my tongue. I can't think. Oh, God. 96. Oh, 
Um, let me. Oh, Carter? No. Carter? No. Is it Carter? I don't think so. No, unfortunately, no. It was Jack Kemp. Jack Kemp, the uh, former Buffalo Bills quarterback and the uh, and the congressman from uh, from New York. So I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry, Ellie. So um, yeah, you got uh, four questions correct. Unfortunately, not not a consolation prize for you. But I appreciate you listening. I appreciate you trying. Thank you, Ellie. Um, if you want to um, give give a shot on Monday, feel free to call in and listen at this time on Monday. All right. I am always excited to talk with Debbie Schlussel. She is smart. She is fiery. She's provocative. She's opinionated. And uh, at times she can be a little polarizing, but I enjoy talking to her. She is someone who is a an attorney, a very popular conservative columnist and a commentator. And we tap into her expertise as a film critic as well. Debbie, it's great to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Good to be back. By the way, I was a Jack Kemp delegate to the 1988 Republican National Convention. You know, I did not know that, but that does not surprise me. (laughs) That does not surprise me. All right, uh, Debbie, I want to see if we can pick your brain on a few issues in the news. But uh, it is now award season, and a lot of people are trying to catch up on uh, films that have been nominated that that, that they haven't yet gotten a chance to see. I'm curious, uh, of all the films that have been nominated, are there any any that you find particularly – um, objectionable, or are there any that you particularly like? You got everything, everywhere, all at once. That's gotten a bunch of nominations. You have, uh, you know, the Avatar movie that's been nominated. You got Top Gun, a few other films. A- anything that really speaks to you? Not really. I have to say, um, you know, I, there was nothing I really liked, and but there was nothing that I really found particularly objectionable. I do think, listen, I'm not, you know me, I'm not politically correct at all, but I do think that the woman that um, that played the main character in the Emmett Till movie called Till, um, her last name is Deadweiler, she should have been the, she should have been nominated for Best Actress, she should win that, now if she can't, I was really shocked because I thought she did a really great job. Um, but I just really wasn't a fan, really, of any of the movies except maybe that one because I thought it was really well done and it was very moving. Um, you know, it just the, the crop of movies these days is really bad. And not only that, but every year I think the people who do the Academy Award nominations are farther and farther apart from the mainstream movie-going public because most people don't go to see these movies except maybe the Avatar 2 movie, which was... That movie I did find objectionable. I thought it was awful and way too long. Well, so, but uh, to your point, though, that is one of the films that's done very well at the box office, and so is Top Gun. So those are films that have gotten a lot of popular support from uh, from moviegoers. So I guess it is possible to do well at the box office and still get some, some nominations. That's true. I guess you're right. But in general, most of these other movies nobody has seen. Most of them. I, you know, nobody went to see, even though the movie actually is not so bad, the movie Living, which I, which just came out last week, um, or, or this week, actually. Um, and it's just a smaller art house movie. That one's not bad. 
Um, but most of these movies, they're smaller. Nobody saw them. But you're right. Those are the two that are the exceptions. What um, it, Was there any film nominated? And after you give me your, uh, your answer, I'm going to tell you what uh, Michael Medved said. But was there any film that was not nominated that you think for the year 2022 was a must watch that you'd highly recommend one of your favorites of the year? Well, I mean, I wouldn't say that it's like a must-watch or my favorite of the year, but I did think the Till movie was very well done. My favorites of the year, now I can't, this is how memorable everything was this year. I can't even remember what my favorites of the year were, and I have to go through the list to look at it because there was nothing that outstanding that I, you know, it's at the top of my tongue, but none of the ones that I really, really liked are on the list. I just can't remember what they were. I'm sorry. No, no, that's okay. The, you caught me off guard No, there. no, that's understandable. I should have prepared you for that one. But the reason I was eager to hear your answer to that, because when I asked it to Michael Medved a week or two ago, he uh, mentioned a film which you gave a, a very favorable review to when we spoke about it, uh, which was not nominated for anything, a film called uh, Devotion, which was a biographical yes. war film. Yes, I did really like that movie um, because it's an unknown story. I also liked the guy, Glenn Powell, who is one of the stars and who produced it and found the story. And it's just a very unlikely story that you wouldn't have known about that the hero is the hero of is a hero of the Korean War and it's about a friendship between a black the first major black fighter pilot in the US military and a white fighter pilot um in a time where maybe you w- that friendship would not have happened um and i just thought it was it showed that they were friends despite everything that was going on then and again i'm not a politically correct person but this was a very patriotic movie and also you know in today's day and age of diversity inclusion and equity which by the way the initials spell die um <laughs> and that's why they reversed the i and the e so that it won't spell that but it does um this was a guy who really made it on merits he was not given affirmative action. He was actually given a lot of obstacles in his way, but he he became a pilot on merit. And I'm all about merit. I'm not about obstacles or racism or anything like that, but I'm about merit. I think merit should return to our society because when you don't have it, you lower the standards, you have bad things happen. So, But this was just a really good story, and I enjoyed it. It was a little slow the beginning but yeah that was the movie and thank you for reminding me no no no, sure thing um and uh, i'm all about being entertained in terms of uh, a motion picture and that's why i'm curious to get your take on uh, some of the films that are available for folks now there's one film that's been heavily advertised and heavily promoted and i'm sure a lot of people going into the super bowl are going to be interested in this particularly with the news this week that tom brady is retiring the film is called 80 for Brady, about four older ladies that are big fans of the Patriots and uh, Tom Brady. This stars uh, four veteran actresses in Hollywood, Jane Fonda, Sally Field, Rita Moreno, and um, and uh, one other. I don't recall the, the fourth one. Of, oh, uh, Lily Tomlin. Give me your take on 80 for Brady, Debbie. So the four horsewomen of the apocalypse. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But um, I actually was prepared to hate this movie. 
but they pulled it off, and it was actually very entertaining. Now, I, I loathe Jane Fonda, Hanoi Jane. My father was in the Army during Vietnam. We all know that she went over there and posed with the Viet Cong and aimed tanks at the American soldiers, and frankly, she should and will rot in hell for that. So I don't forgive her for anything, but I have to be fair. And the movie was very funny. It's sort of like the Golden Girls go to the Super Bowl, only much funnier. Um, and Tom Brady produces it and is in it. So, of course, he's the hero. Um, but he's really kind of a, a cameo, almost not even a co-star. He's almost like he makes a couple cameo appearances. Um, it's about these four older women who want to go to the Super Bowl. It might be their last chance to go. They've developed this crush on Tom Brady, and every Sunday they watch the Patriots play. And I really enjoyed it. Like I said, it's very funny. Um, it is entertaining. Like you said, you watch a movie for entertainment and for escapism, and I enjoyed it. It, it was it definitely achieved in all of those categories. Great. Well, that's, um, uh, that's and I think many and women will enjoy it. That's great. I'm uh, I'm going to check it out now, actually, because I saw a profile on the real life women that this is based on, and they seemed pretty charming. But then I saw some of the advertisements, and I thought maybe it was a little corny. But uh, your uh, review has actually encouraged me to uh, check it out now. Uh, a fella that um, used to be considered uh, the best director in Hollywood, and then he had a string of films that did not go so well, is M. Night Shyamalan. He's got a new film out. It's called Knock at the Cabin. What would you think? I did not care for this movie at all, and I actually did like his past movies. But like you said, he's had a string of movies that weren't so good. Um, it used to be he would have this one twist at the end or towards the end, that would change how you saw the movie and change everything and turn the movie on its head. There is no such twist in this movie. Um, it's basically what you see is what you get, and I hated what I saw or what I got and what I got. And basically the story is there's this gay couple that has in, uh, adopted an Asian girl, Chinese girl, and they are at a cabin on vacation, and all of a sudden these four people come to them saying we're from all different walks of life. We've been chosen to come get you and tell you that you have to kill one of your three members of your family or the world is going to die. Everyone from the world except the three of you is going to die from unimaginable tragedies. And at each, but at several points during the movie, they turn on the TV and there's all kinds of news about planes falling out of the sky and, and horrible tsunamis all over the coast of the United States. And at first, the gay couple says, oh, my gosh, you, you four people are nuts, and it's a suicide cult. But um, they try to convince them. And I just hated this movie because basically it was a suicide cult mm. movie. I was not convinced. I don't know why they chose this gay couple. Was M. Night Shyamalan trying to send us a message that these are the righteous people in the world because they're gay? Come on. Um, I just found it ridiculous. And Oh, by the way, at, at dur during different points during the movie, they um, the people in this suicide cult kill uh, one person in this suicide cult in front of people. So it's just gory and dark for no reason. They don't explain anything to you, and it's just pointless, and I hated it. It's not something I would want to go pay to see. You know, we were talking about entertainment and escapism, 
and I did not find that this movie achieved either of those. For All me. right, okay, hey, uh, that you have same situation. You have actually caused me to cross this one off my list. Living. This is a, a British drama film. What's this about? So this has been nominated for the Academy Awards, and it's not a bad movie, except that it starts out very slow. So it stars Bill Nighy, who I think is really one of the best actors, um, him and Michael Caine coming out of Great Britain that are still alive. Mm. Um, he plays this older guy in, I would say, the 40s or 50s, who's a bureaucrat in London, Um, And at first, they show you how horrible it is in the bureaucracy of England. And then he learns that he has cancer. And all of a sudden, he changes from this dull, boring bureaucrat into something else. And I'm making it sound a little more exciting than it is. It's actually kind of a slow movie. But, you know, it's a peaceful, quiet movie it is entertaining but it but it's a little slow but if you like bill nighy you'll probably like this movie he is in the movie that i think is very overrated and that's the movie love actually but i i think he's just a really good uh masterful actor oh no I, that, I i'm with you he he is uh he is terrific so okay so that's a uh you could take it or leave it film uh, mm-hmm. that one. Okay. All right. L- lastly, I have been um, waiting for a week and a half to ask your opinion on this picture. Although from what I've heard from other people, I have a pretty good idea of where you're going to go on this one. You people, Eddie Murphy, comedic genius. Uh, a lot of people love him. And I think Jonah Hill, who's been starred in some of the most critically and commercially acclaimed comedies of the last 20 years, you people, what'd you think? I hate, 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 hated this movie, and Netflix pimped the hell out of it. They even had, you know, usually this is on Netflix. It's now the number one streaming movie, and it's in a battle with another movie to be the most streamed movie on Netflix of all time, which uh, really disturbs me. This is an anti-white anti-Semitic, racist, bigoted movie where the white people are comp- and Jews are complete morons and idiots and insensitive, and the black people are devout, nice, um, uh, persecuted geniuses who, um, you know, everything bad happens to them because of the white people and so on. Um, and Jonah Hill plays this Jewish guy who wants to marry this black woman and the family's meeting. It's sort of like a guess who's coming to dinner. But, you know, a guess who's coming to dinner was a very classy movie at a time when interracial couples almost never happened. And it was a big it was, a, you know, uh, something to be reckoned with in this movie. Interracial couples, as you and I know, are kind of an old thing. It's not a big deal. And this movie makes it seem like it's something new that's not going on, which shows how dated and out of touch it is. Also, it's mostly not funny, and it belittles the Holocaust. And like I said, the Jews are the morons and are racially insensitive. And as a Jewish person who I grew up in a black, largely black area, I went to a mostly black high school. I still live in the largely black area. I take great offense. I mean, this is not the way I behave. And, you know, Julia Louis-Dreyfus and David Duchovny, who play the parents, they're not Jewish, either of them. And, and, you know, I just felt it was a very disgusting 
divisive piece of propaganda, you know, dressed up as entertainment and comedy. And it wasn't that funny, by the way. Um, and I, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, at the end of the movie, apologized for all Jews and for all whites. And uh, I didn't ask her to apologize for me. I have no reason to apologize. And there's a scene in the movie where Eddie Murphy says, well, it's not exactly like black, like uh, white, uh, Jewish people in yarmulkes are being killed on the streets. But actually, they were being killed on the streets. And you know who was killing them on the streets of New York and New Jersey? Recently, it was black anti-Semites. So and and uh, the um, Julia Louis Dreyfus character mentions Louis Farrakhan, saying that he said stuff about Jews. She doesn't say what he said about Jews, and Farrakhan is mentioned as if he's a good guy, and nothing is ever countered. Um, it's all other things are mentioned as if they're nothing. You know, like I said, the Holocaust is minimized. Other things like that. And I just hate, hate, hated this movie. And anybody who believes in fairness will hate this, should hate this movie, because it's it's propaganda, it's divisive. Um, and I saw it with a group of black people, and they seemed to believe all of these lines. They were clapping for them, and I felt like I was under attack here. So um, I hated this movie, and I knew it would go to the top of Netflix because the screening I saw, and I know they were doing this around the country, they were giving out free popcorn, free soda. They never do this for a movie. Hmm. They never even have screenings anymore. So uh, aside from that, it was it was good. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> there you have you people. All right. Um, real quick, I want to get your take on the uh, announcement that Nikki Haley is going to be running for president. I know you said that you are all in for Ron DeSantis uh, going into next year and that you are getting to the never Trump category because of his dining with anti-Semites and so and so forth. What do you think of Nikki Haley? Is that someone that you could see yourself supporting? You know, if she were the nominee, I would hold my nose and vote for her. But I find her to be uh, um, an opportunist. Her whole platform is basically, I'm a woman of color. I'm a person of color. Vote for me because the Republicans need a person of color. And I'm a woman. Um, and I don't believe in identity politics. I never vote for somebody because they're Jewish, because they're uh, white, because they're black, because they're anything. I vote for people because, you know, they believe in limited constitutional government, because I, you know, happen to like their views and their policies. I don't know what she stands for because she uh, licks her finger and st- sticks it up to the wind and sees which direction it's blowing in. For a person of color, she's actually one of the most vanilla politicians, probably more than most white politicians. Um, and she just stands for whatever she thinks is in. She was against Trump. Then he appointed her the U.N. representative. Then she was for him. Then she was against him. Um, and I don't. And it had nothing to do with that. He I had dinner with Kanye West and Nick Fuentes. Um, I just don't know what she stands for. I don't like people who make their husbands be a Mr. Mom who, uh, you know, that that's basically their biggest achievement. Her and Kamala Harris maybe have that in common. Um, it, it's not a reason to vote for her. And I don't th- I don't think she's actually really running for president. She's running for vice president. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. wants to be 
Ron DeSantis is vice president or somebody else's Debbie, uh, candidate. I got to run. Thank you very much. People could check out more of your commentary at DebbieSchlussel.com uh, in case you're just tuning in. A very strong recommendation for you people. Debbie, thank you. Have, not- have a good weekend, Debbie. I'll talk to you. <laughs> you too. All right. We'll talk soon. Uh, 15 seconds of fame in a moment. 800-848-9222. Say whatever you like for 15 seconds straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Very interesting, uh, before we get to 15 seconds of fame, a lot of people heard that Lanny Poffo clip. So Bridget Guzzi is listening to the WLIR stream. She heard it, and she's repeating back to me what he said. Obi Murray is listening to the WABC stream. He didn't hear it. People on radio didn't hear it in New York. People streaming on through WABC didn't hear it. But the people streaming through WLIR... Heard it. Quite a mystery. So Kenneth has been tasked with investigating it. And uh, if you want to hear what you missed, believe me, it's worth listening to. Check out the podcast. All right. 15 seconds to say whatever you like. You can be heard at 800 The other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Hector in Queens. Google the Charles Gamble shooting, and it's an interstate cop. Mike in Montclair. Good morning, Frank. I hear they're opening an egg dispensary in Manhattan. It's going to be a two-egg limit, browns, whites, free-range, in a variety of sizes and breeds. And if that doesn't work for you, I'll be selling Lucy's on the street. Two for five, 20 for a dozen, foam carton included. Mike in Lake George. Morning, Frank. Real quick, 15 seconds. Harvey Weinstein. You know, I was invited to a private party, Tribeca Grill in the Film Center, 2000, okay? Harvey Weinstein had an office up there. I have a son and daughter and nieces. That Harvey Weinstein is a devil. If anything happened from Harvey Weinstein to my kids or or nieces, I'd kill the guy. Thank you, Mike. On that note, have a great weekend, everybody. Back Monday with some interesting stuff. Frank Morano, good day.